Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the pilot episode of the newest throwback professional wrestling podcast out there. You've tuned in to Kicking Out at Two. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and for some of you that have become familiar with this voice, I'm also the co-host of the Ken Reedy Show, the best in pro wrestling talk, live Sunday evenings, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com. But now I've decided to make the jump, branch out on my own, if you will, because I have so much fun doing this with Ken on a weekly basis, I thought, why not see if I can hang with the rest of you out there that have a podcast? Anyhow, over the course of this journey, I want to create a podcast different from all the others. I want this show to be a part of a movement of positive banter when it comes to professional wrestling. And what I mean by that is, I want this podcast to be for the diehard true wrestling fan. I want to display my genuine feelings and reactions to you, the listeners, without forming my opinion because of something I read off the internet. I'm not here to play fantasy booker and come across as an expert in professional wrestling, because quite frankly, I'm not. In some way... I want to relive my youth by being able to convey my adolescent feelings as best as possible when discussing some of the most memorable moments in professional wrestling history. What I, want, what I won't do, excuse me, is live and die off the dirt sheets and spout terms such as heels, babyface, you can't wrestle, and who deserves a push, because quite frankly, that isn't what defined my love for professional wrestling to begin with. Bottom line here is I hope to present an honest, no bullshit, albeit lighthearted, and more importantly, fun approach to what I'm describing within the context of pro wrestling and entertain you all at the same time. On this pilot episode, I plan to go back into my childhood at 13 years old in 1996 and break down my thoughts on the WCW Bash at the Beach event, a night in wrestling history I think we all can remember as being a game changer on many levels. This honest, no-bullshit, entertaining breakdown will come in the form of a watch-along. Now, if you're not sure what a watch-along is, allow me to explain. You see, I'll pick a show on WWE Network, and as I'm recording this podcast, I'll be calling all the action while you, the listener, will be tuning into my alternate commentary with the TV on mute. Because I'm sure I will sound much better than those bums calling the action on TV. Okay, not really, I won't, but nonetheless... The watch-along concept was inspired by Conrad Thompson of Something to Wrestle with Bruce Prichard, WHW with Tony Schiavone, and 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. His take on the industry fascinates me, and his watch-along concept has made for a new and entertaining way to podcast. So I'd like to add another dimension or layer, if you will, to that concept moving forward. Watch-alongs will be a big part of kicking out at two in different forms and variations, and I cannot wait for you all to be a part of those. But this show is going to be a variety show as well. I'll also present more discussion shows at kicking out at two to sort of break things up a bit. You'll see some countdown shows, maybe some lists, best of shows, and the debut of what I like to call the My Favorite series. I'll sit down and interview some local independent wrestlers here in the Connecticut Tri-State area and discuss their favorite wrestler, match, or storyline in long form. Kicking Out at 2 will feature a roundtable of rotating co-hosts from some of those local independent professional wrestlers to some of my family members, close friends, and just about anyone that will chop it up with me and talk the history of pro wrestling. So that's just a little sneak peek into what's in store here at Kicking Out at 2. So without further ado... 
let's get into this watch along of WCW Bash at the Beach 1996. Fire up your WWE Network right now. Search in the pay-per-view section and click on WCW and find the year 1996 and the Bash at the Beach event. And while I give some of you time to find everything and get set up, I got a few people I would like to thank. First and foremost, my beautiful wife, Nicole. I love you very much, and I thank you for your love and support and my passion for talking pro wrestling, for helping me set this podcast up by buying me the headphones, the microphone, the audio box, and uh, really uh, pushing me hard to do this. I'd also like to thank another person who pushed me real hard, is Dean Yolanis, my oldest friend ever since I was seven years old, my first friend that ever watched wrestling with me. We had a long heart-to-heart a few months ago, and Dean really put things into perspective for me and really gave me the confidence, along with my wife, to help me get my ass in gear and uh, really make a go of this. I'd like to thank Conrad Thompson, a inspiration of mine. Like I said, your watch-alongs that you bring to WHW with Tony Schiavone, your, your take on the business, what you do on the Bruce Pritchard podcast and Eric Bischoff's 83 Weeks. I'm a fan. I'm hooked. And I hope to uh, be able to uh, display half the talent that you have uh, in, in when it comes to podcasting and professional wrestling. And if I can at least be half the talented person you are, I think I'll be able to accomplish something. And finally, I'd like to thank Ken Reedy of The Ken Reedy Show for allowing me to have an opinion and forming my own thoughts on his forum every week. And the best in pro wrestling talk. And I thank you very much for that. And uh, hopefully you'll get to be a part of this too. Uh, you know, we'll work some things out and, you know, get as, this, as time goes on with this podcast, we will eventually uh, link up and uh, the roles will be reversed a little bit. I'll be in the driver's seat and you'll be riding shotgun here and kicking out it too. So with that being said, now that I've gotten all the thank yous out of the way, if you've fired up your WWE Network, like I said, Bash of the Beach, 1996, I'll give you a countdown. I clicked OK right now. Usually there's a commercial or an ad right now. This is currently a tap out ad. When you're watching this and listening to this program, who knows what kind of ad it'll be. Maybe it'll be a toilet paper ad. But uh, here's the countdown for you for WWE Bash at the Beach in three, two, one play and here we see the the opening video highlighting the hostile takeover of wcw with scott hall surprising shocking the world leaving the wwf along with uh kevin nash both individuals represented the razor ramon and diesel characters respectively i remember at this time watching this pre-internet uh, didn't didn't know or was aware that the two of them were going to be making their rival into WCW. Didn't know they were leaving the WWF. I was really comfortable with uh, seeing them a part of WWF programming. I really enjoyed the Diesel Shawn Michaels feud post WrestleMania 12, and was looking forward to seeing more of that. And of course, uh, who doesn't like Razor Ramon? He's the bad guy, Chico. He's cool as hell. So I mean, uh, it was definitely a sight to see when they made their their debuts a part of this. Uh, uh, this storyline as we see a capacity crowd at the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida. Oh, look at that tank top. Must have got half off on that because it's halfway on him. And here we see Tony Schiavone, 
Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, the late Dusty Rhodes, and the late Bobby the Brain Heenan calling all the action for WCW Bash at the Beach this evening. Uh, this shot here, and I'll discuss this as the as the the, the podcast goes on as you're listening. But as they uh, they panned in, you saw uh, Daytona Beach police officers on each side on on Bobby and Dusty's sides, respectively, and uh, they were really playing up the importance of the danger element that the outsiders brought to WCW, and uh, especially the fact that in the opening video you saw Hall and Nash attack Eric Bischoff, who was an announcer at that time. So I really thought it was uh, it was a happening uh, based on scene just like that that i had to order this pay-per-view i had to watch this and unfortunately at the time um i didn't get to order this live i didn't get to watch it live uh, us rosenbluths we were on vacation in florida visiting my grandparents and my parents said no way you're not going to order a pay-per-view at nana and grandpa's that's not going to fly you're going to spend family time with your family you're not going to watch wrestling and so uh i didn't get a chance to see this live i eventually saw this show in 96 on uh, vhs ordered from Blockbuster Video. For those of you out there that uh, really want to date yourselves, Google Blockbuster Video and you'll know what I'm talking about. As the opening match here, pitting Psychosis from Mexico, a luchador, taking on Rey Mysterio Jr. Here's another thing I wanted to mention as we see Psychosis making his way to the ring. The production quality for WCW at the time, not just the graphics with the little shark that came by on the bottom of the screen, but the uh, the set design with uh, the backdrop of the beach with the sand and the boardwalk and the cabanas and the surfboards and the lifeguard chair, the big beach balls and and the palm trees. I thought that was so cool. I thought I was a part of something special watching that, and uh, I would have loved to have been there live just to see it. I'm a big mark for the set designs. I know a lot of fans that go to WrestleMania every year. They're always uh, big on uh, uh, seeing what the, the stage and the entrance and the ramp is going to look like because it's just such a spectacle. It's, you know, a, a, a big part of the show. And I was always a big fan of set designs and what they, you know, what they were going to look like as a paper. That was one of the big things I anticipated as the pay-per-view. If I ever got to order a pay-per-view and it was coming on the air, um, so here, this match for me, uh, 1996, I was familiar with the high-flying wrestling because I'd watched early WCW stuff, and they had a light heavyweight division at that time. Brian Pillman, Jushin Thunder Liger, Brad Armstrong, Scotty Flamingo, who would be known as Raven, were big parts of that division at the time in 1991, 92 maybe, and they didn't really seem to go really far with that division, but I was familiar with high-flying wrestling. And I was a big Brian Pillman fan. I really enjoyed watching flying Brian Pillman. He was probably the first high flyer. Him and the Rockers, Michael, you know, Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, that I really dug because I grew up on Hulk Hogan. And I grew up on the big lugs beating the crap out of each other. Uh, Hogan beating up the monsters and fighting off the big giants and the, and the, and the super heavyweights. And that was what I was conditioned to with wrestling for quite some time. So, uh, as this match was taking place in 1996, I was, um, 1996, especially this time period with the storyline of the, of the hostile takeover and the fact that, uh, WCW had 
really gained a um, a lead in terms of uh, uh, popularity with the addition of Hulk Hogan and a lot of former WWF superstars. I was becoming a little more sophisticated to watching my viewing, and I'll be I'll probably be throwing that term out there a lot on this podcast as the show goes on. But uh, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't against seeing this match, but I was very optimistic. And, and the first person I thought of when, you know, they had mentioned cruiserweights and high flying, I thought of flying Brian Pillman. And so I was, uh, I remember in 96 watching this on, on VHS at the, from the video store. I didn't think that this was going to be a bad match because, um, I just thought of Brian Pillman and I thought, you know, these guys look like that they can go out there and fly and, and, and really wow the crowd as a kid at 13 years old. And so I was, I didn't have any bad thoughts going into this match, especially it being somewhat new to me at the time. Like I said, sophisticated in my viewing. Uh, this was definitely one of the, um, one of the reasons why I watched WCW more because the matches were so exciting and you saw a lot of different things uh, from the guys in the ring. Like you see here is Mysterio and Psychosis uh, flip-flop and fly around for a little bit. Moonsault by Mysterio, Psychosis ducks now spinning heel kick to Mysterio out to the floor as Mysterio sets up to... oh. Suicide plancha over the top rope by Psychosis. As I was saying, uh, these guys were exciting the crowd and were a big reason why I continued to watch WCW, despite the fact I was a big Hulk Hogan fan and I really kind of stuck to my guns and, you know, watched the 300-pound the lugs beat the holy tar out of each other. As uh, Psychosis sends Mysterio back into the ring after that devastating plancha. See there? That suicide plancha, that was something special in 1996. I remember being like, oh, wow, that's that's crazy. I never saw anything like that before. And nowadays, if you watch Monday Night Raw every week, you'll probably see that suicide plancha in about three or four matches. Everyone does the plancha now, uh, which kind of loses its luster and, and special feeling, uh, so to speak, as we see psychosis went from a rear naked chin lock to a modified cobra clutch on mysterio uh who would have thought 1996 ray mysterio cruiserweight wrestler just making his debut in wcw made a little splash in north america you know before this in ecw something i wasn't aware of at the time i'll be perfectly honest with you did not get ecw did not know what ecw was in 1996 uh, but who would have thought that Mysterio, who was basically for a long time uh, pigeonholed as a cruiserweight wrestler, would end up becoming a bigger star than he is? I mean, he, you know, WCW, he was the king of the cruiserweights for such a long time. And when WCW folded and was bought out by the WWE, uh, Rey Mysterio about a year after that really made a big splash and had a more successful run in WWE obviously than he did in WCW but uh, still going at it today rumored to be signing with WWE shortly he's advertised for that Cody Rhodes all-in show he's on a video game now for WWE 2k19 he was in the Royal Rumble in January he was in the Saudi Arabian Royal Rumble earlier this year as well so I mean 
looking good for his age, still can do just about all the stuff that he did in 1996 when I first watched him in that ring. So it's it's amazing uh, the, the, the amount of ability, high-flying ability he still has at his age and what he can do in the ring. It's unbelievable. His psychosis, some sort of rear head headlock of some kind with his legs though a, like a scissor lock of some sorts a modified i'm not really sure what that is some of you wrestling purists out there can correct me if you will and by the way if you do ever want to contact me i'll be setting up social media very soon on facebook twitter and instagram kicking out it too uh you, if you have any questions, if there's any topics you want me to discuss, if there's any shows you want me to do a watch along on, if you just want to give me some constructive criticism about my podcasting, I can take the heat. I certainly will not get out of the kitchen, but I can take the heat. So uh, by all means, have at it. I'm, stay tuned for more information on where you can find Kicking Out at Two on social media. As the action is now picking up with Mysterio slingshotting psychosis into that pole that is attached to the ring post, which will be used in the match following this. I'll get into that a little later. Wow, Ray Mysterio right here. Hurricane Rana off the apron to psychosis on the floor. At that time, yes, another move that was not seen or done before in that variation. I remember seeing Scott Steiner do the Frankensteiner years prior, and it was impressive to see him do something like that. I thought that was uh, one of the coolest things I ever saw. In fact, I think that's probably the reason why I was a Steiner Brothers fan, because of that move, because it was just so awesome to to see him perform that. But uh, Mysterio, another Hurricane Rana, into a pinning combination. Psychosis kicks out at two. There you go. Kicking out it too. What do you know? Uh, Mysterio still working on psychosis, trying to wear him down. Drop kick to the left knee as he's now going to work on the knee. Great storytelling here by both individuals. Psychosis had worked on the, the head and neck area of Mysterio. Now Mysterio working on the leg of psychosis. Unfortunately, as great and as talented as the athletes are today, that uh, perform on in WWE's cruiserweight division, they just they don't tell stories like these guys did back in 1996, like the Luchadors did, and a lot of the High Flyers did during the 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 cruiserweight era in WCW. You see a lot of flip flop and fly nowadays, and without any rhyme or reason. And I'm not saying I'm an expert, but by any stretch of the imagination i'm certainly not however i'll watch some of these cruiserweight matches and i'll see a guy do a, a 450 corkscrew off the top rope onto a guy the guy will kick out and then the guy will get up like nothing happened after he just took that move and there's no believability in some of that stuff and when then when you keep doing the same thing over and over again, the guy keeps kicking out. It's like, why am I supposed to believe that that move is supposed to end the match or it's supposed to put the guy down if you can't beat that person with the move? It's so that's just my take on cruiserweight wrestling and kicking out it too. you know, for those of you that are aware, just tuning in right now, uh, it's a retro wrestling podcast, so I'll be talking 80s, 90s, early 2000s. I really won't get too much into the current day product unless I absolutely have to, unless there's something out there um, 
in the news that needs to be addressed or needs to be discussed or if, even if it's just on my mind I want to get something off my chest about it I might discuss current day stuff but it's this is all retro this is all the good old days what I grew up on and hopefully what you grew up on so I hope you'll be able to enjoy the good old days of professional wrestling with me here at kicking out at two and Psychosis delivers a reverse DDT to Mysterio. Mysterio, aware of his uh, his ring presence, rolls out to the floor to avoid getting pinned. And this is an interesting spot here coming up as we see Psychosis draping Mysterio's neck over the guardrail, still working on that neck head area as, it, as he's about to set him up for uh, a very dangerous move, a move I don't think we see currently today in today's uh, current product. As uh, he's climbing up to the top rope, it looked like right here he's going to deliver some kind of senton splash, maybe even a leg drop. I don't know if he overshot it, but definitely very dangerous and something that uh, the guys in, on WWE, you, you won't see them perform that today, that's for sure. As uh, Psychosis is getting up here, looks looks to be uh, suffering the... Uh, the from the damages that he inflicted not only on Mysterio but on himself I remember as a kid watching this match on, on VHS later on and being really uh, enthralled and and entertained and wowed by their athleticism and, and, and the high flying and like I said when they labeled them as cruiserweights they, uh, my first immediate thought was Brian Pillman. And I was like, if they can fly like Brian Pillman, then this will be a good match. And they actually, in some ways have done better than Brian Pillman in this match. Uh, an individual that I'm sure I'll be discussing on kicking out at two in future episodes. Not sure how, but Brian Pillman will definitely be discussed on this show. Here we have psychosis delivering a, uh, a camel clutch with his fingers in Rey Mysterio's mouth, which, all right, as a kid, I never understood that. Why would you put your fingers in a guy's mouth? Yes, it can be quite annoying and disturbing to have someone's fingers in your mouth and being forced to to taste their fingers, but why wouldn't you try to bite his fingers? Why wouldn't Rey try to bite Psychosis's fingers in hopes that he'll never do that again? Never really understood that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things I I never really understood as a kid that I'm sure that I'll be discussing here on Kicking Out at Two and pro possibly on you know the the rest of this show here at Bash at the Beach as the action really picking up between both Mysterio and Psychosis, spinning Hurricane Rana by Mysterio to Psychosis, sending him out to the floor. Psychosis looking to catch his bearings. As he makes his way up to the apron with Mysterio here. Springboard drop kick off the second rope to Psychosis. Down on the apron. The aerial assault has continued by the master of the 619. Once again, up top. Hurricane Rana to Psychosis. Off the apron onto the floor. Very dangerous move. Crowd seems to be into it. Here at bash at the beach 1996 both guys really pulling out all the stops and this is what i love talking about when it comes to uh you know the yesteryear of professional wrestling and comparing things from yesteryear to today that's another move that it will probably get done it would probably you would probably see something like that 
in today's product, but not as often as you did back in 96 because of the danger element. Uh, certain guys may be able to perform that, but not everybody can do that move, despite the despite what a lot of guys would tell you. Mysterio going for the two, or excuse me, Mysterio going for the the pinning combination, only getting two as Psychosis sends him into the rope. Drop kick by Mysterio to the chest of Psychosis. Mysterio now looking to continue the aerial assault. Springboard drop kick to the back of the neck, sending Psychosis out to the arena floor. This match has been all aerial, which has been uh, highly entertaining as he goes for a corkscrew acai moonsault onto psychosis right here on the floor these guys are tearing it up killing each other out there holy cow man that's just wow unbelievable and you know something some of this stuff mysterio is has done in this match i would imagine he probably would perform half of these moves i think he's a sm i think he would you would say that he's a a much smarter uh, performer now especially at his age oh nice counter by psychosis countering into a sit down power bomb going for the cover two and a kick out shoulder up by mysterio unbelievable unbelievable great match to open up wcw bash at the beach don't have enough uh, good things to say about it with psychosis here Oh, driving Mysterio's midsection into the top turnbuckle. And this is the point in the match here where I think we're towards the end. This is the finish here as, as Psychosis looks to uh, be setting Ray up for some sort of like second rope razor's edge. Here we go. And Mysterio countering into a Hurricane Rana for the cover. One, two, three. Your winner as the crowd is on their feet. In this opening match, Rey Mysterio Jr. That was a pretty hot open for WCW Bash at the Beach 1996. Uh, definitely a smart move from a, um, uh, from a, uh, uh, how would you, how, how would I say this without sounding too uh, internet? Um, I don't want to use the word booking and, and booking strategy, but I guess you could say from an organizational standpoint and preparing a show, so to speak, uh, definitely the right call to open the pay-per-view with this match and giving fans like myself a preview at that time at 13 years old of what WCW's Cruiserweight division was all about. This was the, the, the blueprint, so to speak, of Cruiserweight wrestling with two guys from Mexico, very well known in Mexico, uh, now making their their bones in the United States of America on national television for the second biggest company and at, at some point soon after this probably the, the number one wrestling company in the world WCW as Mysterio, Mysterio here with his hand raised in victory hard fought match against Psychosis here's an individual who helped bring those two men into WCW but mainly into wrestling in North America and that's Conan uh, something I knew later on. Uh, didn't know this at 13 years old, but uh, at 13 years old, I, w I always wondered who the hell's Conan and why is he the United States champion? Didn't really care for him at this time. Character didn't connect with me. Just wasn't uh, 
wasn't a fan. Uh, nothing against him, ta- his, his talent or whatever the case may be, but his, his character just didn't connect with me, and he just seemed like a virtual unknown holding the second most prestigious championship in all of WCW. Because at the time, the WCW United States champion was the automatic number one contender to the WCW World Heavyweight title. And I didn't look at Conan as a guy that I felt could be wrestling for the WCW World Heavyweight title in 1996 at 13 years old. I just didn't. So him wearing this championship for me at 13 years old, I just didn't, it didn't seem right. Didn't didn't fit for me. I would have much rather I would have much preferred you know a Lex Luger or a Sting or an Arn Anderson uh, to be the 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 WCW United States champion, not a guy who I barely even knew who he was in Conan. And that's no disrespect to him, but that's just that's just a plain honest truth. At that time, I did not know who he was. As the Second match is set to get underway here. Now, this match in 1996 and currently in 2018 is a match that uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it because even though I said it in the opening, um, I, I, I told you I vowed I wouldn't do this, but I'm going to do this, but for a different reason. This match sucked, plain and simple. This match sucked, okay? Uh, this match pitting Big Bubba Rogers from the Dungeon of Doom looking like a village people reject accompanied by the mouth of the South Jimmy Hart as he will battle former Dungeon of Doom stablemate John Tenta for those of you who are familiar with who John Tenta was John Tenta wrestled as Shark in the Dungeon of Doom. And before that, he wrestled as the Avalanche in the Three Faces of Fear. And before that, when I first knew who he was and probably the most memorable character he played in all of wrestling, he was Earthquake in the WWF. Now, Big Bubba Rogers here, Big Bubba, all trouble, was the Big Boss Man. And that was my first recollection of who he was of of his wrestling fandom as the big boss man uh he would play big bubba as uh, jim Cornette's bodyguard for the midnight express uh he was you know big boss man like i said in wwf when he made his way to wcw he was uh the boss which i thought was stupid and then apparently he lost a match or something happened and WCW's executive committee told him he could no longer portray the name The Boss. They stripped him of his name, which I never heard of that before in wrestling. Even as a kid, I thought that was pretty stupid. Stripped him of his name and he had to rename himself, so he renamed himself The Guardian Angel. And then after that didn't work, then he went back to Big Bubba. And uh, this match here is what they call a Carson City silver dollar on a pole match. You saw that shot earlier of the tube sock full of silver dollars. Looked like a condom hanging off of uh, uh, a utility pole there. And the object of this match is to have beaten your opponent so decisively that you were able to climb that pole as you see John Tenta contemplating doing right there and grab that sock full of silver dollars from Carson City and then proceed to beat the shit out of your opponent with a sock full of loose change from your couch cushion. 
<laughs> okay. At 13 years old, this sounded pretty stupid. And in 2018, at 35 years old, this still sounds pretty stupid. Uh, I must say, as you see, Tenta and Bubba going at it. Not my fondest memories of these two. Like I said, Big Boss Man, For as far as Big Bubba Rogers goes, Big Boss Man was uh, my favorite character he played. I met the Big Boss Man once at a furniture store in Weathersfield, Connecticut. It was called Unclaimed Freight. And uh, he was very nice, and I had a Big Boss Man trucker hat on, and he complimented me on my hat, shook my hand, told me to... You know, do your homework, stay in school, and stay out of trouble. And that was probably, you know, one of my most fondest memories of meeting a professional wrestler. And then there's John Tenta, who portrayed the Earthquake character. And in the World Wrestling Federation at the time, Earthquake scared me as a young as a young boy. He attacked and ended up injuring Hulk Hogan on the Brother Love Show, potentially ending his career. And for me as a kid, Earthquake was evil. He was scary and he was evil. And he doesn't look very scary or evil in this, especially with that half a haircut, which I didn't really get or understand. I don't know what he was trying to do, prove a point. I don't know who came up with that idea. Well, we're going to shave half your head and you're going to come out with the other half on. And uh, we're going to see how well that does. Whoever's idea that was, that was pretty stupid. Hopefully it wasn't Tenta's. Hopefully he was just doing his job and going along with with business as usual. Uh, the star of the show in this match will be the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, towards the end. Uh, another manager in wrestling that uh, has managed some of the greats of all time, had been part of some memorable, memorable moments. This not being one of them, this match certainly not very memorable. Unfortunately, covering it here and kicking out of two, it might be memorable for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> As we see Tenta trying to adjust the uh, the straps there in hopes that he can lower the pole so he can climb his big fat ass up the pole <laughs> and get those Carson City silver dollars. Now, I don't want to speak ill of the, of the dead, and if anyone was offended by that, I apologize. Fortunately, both of these men no longer with us. Uh, big Bubba, Big Boss Man, recently went to the WWE Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. Uh, John Tenta, not in there. Some could argue he had a Hall of Fame career. His role is the shark. And in this character here, I don't think qualifies as Hall of Fame, but he was a great performer, definitely moved around very well for the big guys and uh, made an impact in the, uh, the short period of time he was in the business. As uh, Big Bubba choking the life out of Tenta and now coming back into the ring, choking him with his belt that was around his waist as he pulls out a roll of medical tape not sure what he's planning to do here pulling Tenta over to the middle rope oh okay something else that I'm going to question that might sound very silly and stupid but hopefully some of you can have an answer for me if not oh well but he just tied John Tenta to the rope with the medical tape. Now, that's all fine and dandy, okay? However, John Tenta has an, a free arm. So 
why is he not until this point right now why wasn't he trying to get himself out in those 15 seconds did he not realize that his hand was free as we saw big bubba laying into tenta with that belt buckle still tied to the rope with that medical tape and for being a big guy and as massive as john tenta was at that time i'm surprised uh they didn't uh portray his sheer strength and size and he just ripped the tape off the rope because i'm sure he was a big guy like him he was capable of doing that with big bubba here choking the life out of him with that belt still working on that belt or still working him with the belt i should say excuse me and like i said folks this is a pilot episode i may be a little rough around the edges this is my first time going solo here okay i've been a co-host and a co-pilot on a ken reedy show for six years now so i do apologize if i may stumble over my words at times maybe i'll repeat a few things but uh by all means like i said constructive criticism is welcome uh that certainly isn't that low blow by john tenta right there to the bread basket of big bubba rogers as he uses the scissors to free himself with the medical you know from the medical tape tied to the second rope oh smart idea see he must have heard me earlier cut that rope so he can lower the pole and therefore he'd be able to climb up that pole but that climb wouldn't be as high because the pole would be lower as Bubba now headbutting Tenta getting the best of the big man before he could finish his plan of trying to make an easier climb up that pole for those Carson City silver dollars stuffed in a tube sock ooh interesting spine buster by Big Bubba to John Tenta as we see Bubba signaling for Jimmy Hart to climb up the pole. And like I said earlier, this is the, the, the star of the show is right here. It's Jimmy Hart, you know, he didn't, he didn't spare any expense when it came to uh, allowing himself to uh, be humiliated in professional wrestling. He did a great job playing a little weasel. And this moment right here, yeah, not even in the match, he's doing all the work climbing up the pole, not realizing that Tenta now slamming big bubba as he goes for the the sock with all the silver dollars in it sliding down the pole soaking in the adulation from the audience not realizing that as he turns around he's going to be giving these carson city silver dollars to the wrong guy right there john tenta pushing jimmy hart off the pole boom across the jaw to big bubba rogers this is probably the only time during the match that the audience cheered and even got up off their feet for the finish as John Tenta has won the Carson City Silver Dollar on a pole match. As I say that, it just sounds so silly and stupid. What is your favorite Carson City Silver Dollar on a pole match? Slide it into my DMs in any one of the Kicking Out at Two social media platforms, either Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, when I do eventually set those up, which should be fairly soon. And you tell me what your favorite Carson City silver dollar on a pole match is. I'd love to hear it. As the crowd on their feet, with Bubba here coming to, as we go to the replay, here you see Jimmy pulling the sock down, and oops! Wrong guy. Tenta knocking Jimmy over 
hanging off that pole and then swinging for the fences and boom home run city by John Tenta to the jaw of big Bubba Rogers crowd on their feet in the replay there as he goes for the cover one two three and as they would say that is all she wrote for big Bubba Rogers as we go to uh the broadcast team here, Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, Dusty Rhodes, once again still flanked by Daytona's Finest as they uh, really hype up the importance of tonight's main event between the Outsiders against Team WCW for the uh, future of professional wrestling and the future of world championship wrestling. I will say I did really enjoy these three as a team. I don't think they get enough love from a uh, you know a commentating standpoint people always talk about jim ross and jerry lawler gorilla monsoon and bobby the brain heenan vince mcmahon jesse ventura joey styles lance russell you name it but i feel like shivani is very underrated and uh you know bobby's bobby he's the greatest of all time in my opinion greatest commentator greatest manager and dusty's dusty you know you can't beat dusty on the stick and these three together i really I felt like they brought it all together, uh, a collaborative effort in helping present uh, a great program, especially for me as a kid. As we see Team WCW here being interviewed by Mean Gene Okerlund, and there's a point I want to bring up here in this in this portion of the podcast as we're watching Randy Savage Sting and Lex Luger uh, discuss their uh, their thoughts on the main event as they face the Outsiders and that mystery third guy. If you go back and you remember uh, at the time, Lex Luger had an affiliation with these two men off and on. And Luger's allegiance was always in question with especially Randy Savage. But even at times Sting, Sting would give Luger the benefit of the doubt and, and you know want to know where his head was at. But Savage always questioned Luger's allegiance. And I was very surprised as a kid that Luger was the third guy on this team. And I want you guys to hold on to that thought for a minute, okay? Hold on to that, and I'll bring it up again later in the main event. As we see all three men decked out in Sting's war paint, the uh, the signature uh, colorful face paint from Surfer Sting, along with Randy Macho Man Savage and Lex Luger. I thought this was a pretty cool uh, look and an idea to kind of uh, symbolize the unity that WCW had had, that these three guys were going to war against two invading outsiders like uh, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Uh, One thing I was, another thing I was also surprised at, that, uh, you know, these were the three that were chosen. Not saying that these three weren't good enough in the storyline to represent WCW, but there were also some other big names in WCW that were synonymous with WCW, like Ric Flair and like Arn Anderson and, and even Hulk Hogan. Uh, and, I'll, and we'll get into that later, of course, Hogan's involvement in this match and, you know, the aftermath of that. But I thought this was really cool here. All three guys decked out in the paint with the Howard Cosell of professional wrestling, Mean Gene Okerlund, uh, interviewing them, asking all the tough questions. Nobody beats Gene Okerlund when it comes to uh, being a backstage interviewer, in my opinion. He really brought some uh, legitimacy and credibility to the product and here we see the taped fist lord of the ring match or is it the lord of the ring taped fist match 
Maybe they just couldn't make up their mind, so they figure, ah, fuck it, we'll just do both. With Diamond Dallas Page making his way to the ring, the 1996 Battle Bowl winner, DDP looks like he uh, he rummaged through the, uh, the, the, the leather pants of one Big Bubba Rogers to find that medical tape so that he could bring it out here for this taped fist Lord of the Ring match between himself and his opponent, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who will be making his way to the ring shortly. Man, those kids need to brush their teeth. Could that cameraman get any closer to those kids? Holy cow. So we see a shot of this capacity crowd. And Hacksaw Jim Duggan making his way with the 2 by 4 in one hand and waving old glory, the American flag, in the other. Uh, my memories going back watching this in 1996, uh, I didn't really have, I didn't really invest, uh, you know, my my thoughts and my feelings into this match. I, I think I was, I think this, for me, this was a one-match show. And it was all about the main event. And this match didn't really do it for me then. Uh, but I was I was kind of intrigued by the Diamond Dallas Page character at the time. Because at that time he had uh, gone from, you know, he was a, a commentator and a manager. And then he ended up becoming a wrestler. And he was doing some pretty interesting things with uh, Kimberly, his wife, who was his Diamond Doll. He had won, in the storyline, he had won the lottery. And he was rich, and DDP had it all. And then it turned out that it was Kimberly who actually had the winning lottery ticket. It wasn't DDP, and he was just mooching off her. And finally, she got sick of him being such a mooch. She kicked him to the curb. He ended up becoming homeless. And they had filmed little skits of DDP coming out of gas station bathrooms and, uh, you know, driving old beat up cars to get to the arena and he had to sell everything he owned and so he was wearing ring tights with holes in them and he just looked like hell and then he he managed to uh managed to sneak out a victory in the wcw battle bowl event the lethal lottery for those of you unaware what the lethal lottery was at the time it was two random individuals good guy and bad guy or two bad guys or even two good guys teaming together to face another random tag team in a tag team match and the winning team would then move on to the the battle bowl match which was a two ring battle royal and uh ddp ended up winning that battle royal at slamboree 1996 two months prior and of course if you win the battle bowl and you get the ring then all of a sudden your your financial status goes up so ddp went from the penthouse to the outhouse and then back to the penthouse within the span of months uh on wcw television so that was like uh i thought that was an interesting uh uh, uh plot twist in the uh the 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 character build for diamond dallas page as you see he is now cutting the wrist tape off of hacksaw jim duggan must have snagged those those scissors from john tenta before this match took place excuse me as uh here's something that's very illogical why would you cut the wrist tape off of a guy that you're wrestling in a taped fist match I just don't get it as Duggan now taking advantage of Diamond Dallas Page with the untaped fists and 
really laying it into DDP bouncing in between the second and top rope with that second right hand and now a third right hand and Paige eventually hanging and now off the steps onto the floor didn't really understand that 13 years old didn't understand it don't understand it now but uh these last two matches have been uh, sponsored by uh, Johnson and Johnson's medical tape when you need it just ask just ask Bubba for it he's got it right in his back pocket as Hacksaw Jim Duggan now putting the beating on Diamond Dallas Page sending him into the guardrail Duggan for me as a kid he was fun to watch. He was actually one of my grandfather's favorite wrestlers. My grandfather always said, who's the guy with the two-by-four? And he sticks his tongue out. He's a, he's a funny guy. I like him. And uh, he was a big fan of Hacksaw Jim Duggan and the Bushwhackers, which I was a fan of neither of those. But Duggan was all right for me. I didn't really uh, get too invested in Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I wouldn't have too many fond memories of Hacksaw Jim Duggan but in later years uh, watching the WWE Network and some of the stuff that he did in Mid-South Wrestling uh, with Ted DiBiase, the Tuxedo Coal Miners, Steel Cage Loser Leaves, Louisiana match uh, from Mid-South Wrestling in the UWF uh, that was some really good stuff you go there, you find it on the WWE Network, you can probably find it on there they have just about everything uh as page here with the fujiwar armbar combo i feel like if 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 hacksaw jim duggan as a kid if he came in and kind of had that a little bit more of a rugged you know rough around the edges personality um from his days in in mid-south if i was aware of who he was then i probably would have liked him more in wwf but he was uh he was he was a good comedy character in the WWF, but it just didn't do it for me. It really didn't do it for me at the time. Here we see Paige and Duggan sending each other into the corner. Paige with the back elbow to Hacksaw Jim Duggan going to the top rope here as Duggan countering, sending Paige in his southern region, so to speak, crashing to the the turnbuckle. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, that's really all I got for this match. Honestly, I just didn't, uh, I didn't really understand it in 1996 and just not doing it for me right now. And you guys are probably wondering as you're listening to this and watching this, well, then why the hell are you covering this show? Well, like I said, this was a one match show for me, but, uh, I thought maybe it'd be fun to go back and take a look at, you know, some of the, uh, some of the, the, the matches on this show that, that eventually led you to the main event and some of the guys that were involved in these matches and and hopefully, you know, some of my my conversations about Diamond Dallas Page and Hacksaw Jim Duggan and some of these other guys have really uh you know brought some fond memories for some of you out there listening. So that's one of the main reasons why I, I chose this show. But obviously being the main event. And here we see DDP delivering an early variation of the diamond cutter for the victory in this taped fist Lord of the Ring match, or if you want to call it a Lord of the Ring taped fist match, I will not argue that here. Diamond Dallas Page, your winner. And oh, Duggan got another roll of tape. Who threw him that tape out of nowhere? Was it the fan? Timekeeper? Ring announcer? Who knows? But boom, another post match knockout. 
this time from Hacksaw Jim Duggan to Diamond Dallas Page. <laughs> All right. That was uh that wasn't too painful to 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 watch, but uh certainly not the best outing from either one of these guys as we continue here with WCW's Bash at the Beach. Nick Patrick here checking on the unconscious, unaware Diamond Dallas Page. Here we go for the replay. Diamond Cutter by DDP to Hacksaw Jim Duggan, sealing his fate and the victory as DDP would continue this streak, this winning, his winning ways in 1996. Uh, for those of you that uh, are big wrestling historians and speaking of uh speaking of uh winning ways here's another here's an individual who's had a very winning career we all know him as the big show but at one time he was the giant he at the in, in this uh picture here as the WCW World Heavyweight Champion partnered with the Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan and their manager, the Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, representing the Dungeon of Doom. Now, looking at just these two guys, at 13 years old, I was like, they should just make this, these two a tag team because I always thought that they would have been a good, um, a good team. They had a good look together, and I just felt like they 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 did well together. And with Jimmy Hart as the manager, it reminded me a lot of uh, Haku and Andre the Giant as the colossal connection, but. They didn't do that. They continued with that silly Dungeon of Doom uh, concept where they had Kamala and the Zodiac and you know Big Bubba, who didn't really fit into the Dungeon of Doom, in my opinion. Haku, Barbarian. Who, just It was just stupid. I was kind of over it, and I was kind of done with it. And Obviously, here they are hyping up their match with uh, the Four Horsemen as they'll take on Arn Anderson and Chris Benoit later in the evening. Another individual I thought would have been a good third, you know, part of that three-man team for Team WCW, the champion, the giant, the WCW World Heavyweight Champion. Why was he not a part of that team? I mean, we'll find out later, but uh, I guess he had bigger fish to fry in the form of the Four Horsemen on that night at WCW's Bash at the Beach. And uh, we send it back to Lee Marshall, who's going to be uh, interviewing Chris Benoit and Arn Anderson. Uh, Arn Anderson, my opinion, and uh, you know, that's why this is, uh, you know, that's why pro wrestling is what it is, you know, and especially talking pro wrestling is that, you know, everyone's got an opinion. It's not right or it's not wrong, but in my opinion, Arn Anderson is the greatest wrestler to never wear the world heavyweight championship never to be world champion a um, couple reasons why i liked arn anderson so much because he looked very believable his ring style was very believable you believed that he could beat you up um, he talked a good game but he backed it up in the ring his tone in his interviews his style the way he spoke he uh he was very matter of fact he told you like it was and then he went out and he did it and he, arn anderson and this is no bullshit this is honest uh this is my true thoughts and this is a fact arn anderson was the first bad guy I ever liked in wrestling i just felt he was just so believable and so intimidating that 
and his his style in the ring was so good that I had no choice but to like him. He did the DDT, and he did the spine buster, and I thought those were really cool moves, and that's what made me like Arn Anderson. Here's another reason why I like Arn Anderson so much, okay? For some of you out there that collect pro wrestling merchandise, maybe even some action figures, uh, I myself collect uh, old wrestling action figures, stuff I had when I was a kid, and I've been actually buying some stuff that uh, I didn't have in on a future episode of Kicking Out It 2, we will discuss pro wrestling merchandise and the market for uh, wrestling action figures that's out there these days on a future episode of Kicking Out It 2. So stay tuned for that. But I had the WCW Galoob wrestlers, and I still have some here in my studio. And I'll take pictures of that and decorate the uh, Kicking Out It 2 social media pages with pictures of the studio. But the Arn Anderson action figure from, from the Galoob, I'll pull it off my shelf here so I can kind of take a look at it as i describe this to you not only was the detail so well done in terms of what he looked like but the way that the the action figure was structured the pose that arn anderson did um it was just an easily playable action figure i had some of my best action figure matches as a kid with this arn anderson and with the brian pillman from the wcw galoob set and then eventually when i would intermingle some of the the wwf hasbro figures which i have in my glass display case over here and i'll take pictures of that put it up on the kicking out of two social media in the very near future um this Arn Anderson action figure was one of my favorites. So as I was developing this podcast and getting uh, things in order, my wife had helped me uh, decorate the studio here. And uh, I wanted to display the action figures. And I happened to go to my parents' house, and my mother had found an old box full of a few of them. And uh, lo and behold, there was the Arn Anderson one. It's a little worn out and some paint wear on it, but uh, still in some pretty decent shape and definitely uh one of my favorite wrestling action figures to to uh to play with as a kid here we have the four corner tag team dog collar match as i go from one extreme to another talking about wrestling action figures and four guys who didn't really uh exemplify uh technical wrestling the public enemy and the nasty boys in this four corners dog collar match uh remember watching this and and being entertained and liking the uh the the brawl that these four put out in this match and the punishment they put on each other was not a big fan of either of these guys uh, these teams although uh if i were to pick one team that had more memorable matches and moments in my wrestling fandom would probably be the nasty boys uh, they had a great, great match with the Steiner brothers at the 1990 Halloween Havoc. They had another great match at the 1991 uh, uh, SummerSlam pay-per-view against the Legion of Doom. Their WCW Spring Stampede match with Cactus Jack and Max Payne was it sometimes it's disturbing to watch today in 2018, especially knowing what um, you know. Uh, what some of these uh, former wrestlers and even professional athletes are going through suffering from CTE with all the head trauma, the stuff that those two, those two teams did to each other. You go on the WWE network, you find WCW spring stampede, 1994. It's a Chicago street fight. The nasty boys against cactus Jack and max Payne. Uh, if you have an uneasy stomach, I would suggest you not eat before this match because th these four guys, 
they did some things to each other in 1994 that uh, I didn't think was possible. But in 1996 here, against the public enemy, uh, definitely uh, a, a fun match. The concept, the dog collar match, uh, a match that you don't see a whole lot of. Uh, in wrestling history, as far as I as far as I know, the only dog collar matches I remember are uh, the probably the most famous one being Greg the Hammer Valentine and uh, Roddy Piper from the the inaugural Starcade nineteen eighty three. That was the match that Piper lost part of his hearing in one of his ears because of the the punishment that he put himself through with that chain. Then there's this match. Uh, which is nothing compared to the Piper Valentine Starcade classic with the dog collar. Um, and then I remember a, a, a chain match with, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I'm lo losing my train of thought here. The Triple H and Kane from Judgment Day 2001, which I thought was a really fun match, except they weren't tied around their neck. They were, the chains were uh, linked to uh, each other's wrists, and I thought that was a pretty fun match. But not too many dog collar matches that I can remember within the history of professional wrestling. But, you know, chains have been, uh, uh, you know, used in wrestling before, but in different ways other than just the dog collar matches. We see the split screen action with both teams really putting a beat into each other, using all the plunder, baby, if you will. That's rap, baby. He putting them on wobbly leg street with that shot to the head with the trash can lid by Johnny Grunge to Brian Knobs, baby. That's right. That was my best American Dream Dusty Rhodes impression. And if, uh, you know, you don't like my impressions, let me know. I'm kicking out of two's social media platforms coming soon, Okay. Just let me know if you don't like them, and I'll stop doing them. But if I feel like one's really good, I might just keep going with it. As we see, oh, Rocco Rock taking a seat on that guardrail, straddling it courtesy of Jerry Sags and his offensive display with that chain now clotheslining him into the crowd. And here we see Knobs and Johnny Grunge. They made their way to the beach. Life's a beach. And then you get hit in the head with a rubber shark. <laughs> I could, you know, I said this earlier discussing the uh, the my feelings on how this announced team with Shivani, Dusty, and Bobby Heenan was very underrated. I could just only imagine the commentary between these three currently right now, and the the one liners and the hilarity that is taking place between all three of them. Tony Schiavone's probably just laughing his ass off, hardly being able to call the match while it's really Dusty and Bobby that are calling all the action with all their one-liners. Uh, and earlier I made mention of my, uh, my, uh, my liking of the, uh, the production and the, the set that WCW put together here with the beach and the theme and, really enjoying it and now they're just destroying it and making it look less appealing uh, during this match a uh, whole lot of sand there at the beach so to speak as brian knobs goes for a cover and a two count on top of the surfboard right in front of the boardwalk <laughs> on the set and on the, onto your your right you see johnny grunge dragging sags through the beach with a trash can lid to the head as he's set to climb the i think it looks like he's going to climb the the lifeguard chair 
and deliver some devastating offense with that chain in the lifeguard chair. As Sags pulls Rocco Rock down, plancha, somersault plancha, two Sags from Rocco Rock into the sandcastle. I think that sandcastle's been knocked over. Oh, no, it's still there. And there you see Nobbs wailing away on Johnny Grunge. Fortunately, the, uh, the public enemy no longer with us, both men passing away a number of years ago uh, loyal ecw fans out there that are listening uh, will probably uh crucify me for not recognizing public enemies uh contributions to the business based on their time in ecw i didn't watch a whole lot of ecw at that time when public enemy was there this was my first exposure to them in wcw because i didn't get ecw so uh didn't have it on, on my cable at the time so uh, I've heard and seen some stuff from them, and some of the stuff they've done is, I wouldn't say is Hall of Fame worthy, but it definitely uh, made a mark in ECW on a regional level. Uh, but I'm probably going to get crucified and lynched for not giving these guys enough credit for what they contributed to the business, especially since they've passed. So for those of you out there that want to criticize me for not, you know, showing more love to the public enemy was a reason why I do this podcast and it's not you. So fuck you. Okay. <laughs> in all, in all seriousness, uh, I'm sure that, uh, there'll be things I say on this program that will probably rub some people the wrong way. And, uh, you could take it or leave it, but it's my opinion. And, uh, what I really want, like I said, to accomplish with this podcast is to bring more positive banter and, and not make this about, um, you know, making sure that my opinion matters and my opinion counts and and uh, making it gospel when it comes to my thoughts on professional wrestling. I just want this to be fun. And, you know, wrestling's supposed to be fun and talking about wrestling's supposed to be fun and watching a match like this and these four guys just tearing each other apart is supposed to be fun and you're supposed to get lost in it. And I want you all to get lost in the conversation that hopefully I bring with, you know, a round table of uh, rotating you know guests and co-hosts. I said it in my open uh, the my favorite series that I plan to do on kicking out at two. Not only am I going to interview local independent wrestlers in the Connecticut and tri-state area that uh, have their fond memories of pro wrestling, but also family and friends as well. Uh, I told you there's going to be different discussion shows and topics and uh, countdown shows and uh, watch alongs in different variations and forms. I got different themed watch alongs. This is just a standard watch along here, but uh, I'm going to present the no filter theater watch along where I'm going to take, uh, you know, random people, whether they are, uh, you know, family members of mine, friends that may or may not watch wrestling may have little knowledge about wrestling and i'm just going to randomly put something from wwe network on there and i'm going to get their random thoughts and genuine feelings in the no filter theater watch along so i'm looking forward to that and uh, looking forward to seeing who's going to be a part of that and just looking forward to having fun with this podcast and you know if it takes me places i've never been before i i'm i'm ready to go for the ride but if um 
Um, I just happen to be sitting in my basement here recording this podcast for you for the next 15 years and I don't get much notoriety. I'm okay with that too, but I'm shooting for the best and, and, and reaching for the stars. And if it doesn't get there, if I don't get there, or if it doesn't happen, so be it. But I just want to have fun doing this as I'm having fun right now watching the public enemy and the nasty boys really beat the shit out of each other and really make a, uh, make a mark on this show. We've seen a different variety of, uh, of wrestling the, the the show opened with a cruiserweight match which saw a different style and then you saw two matches that just kind of really i wouldn't say put me to sleep but they certainly didn't grab my attention enough for me to want to talk about all the action during the match and uh you know, we had a Carson City Silver Dollar match. We had a Tape Fist Lord of the Ring match. We had a Cruiserweight match. Now we have a Four Corners Dog Collar Tag Team match on the beach as the public enemy wearing out the Nasty Boys with those chains, bringing a table into the ring, setting things up, setting the table for what's to come, hopefully in the future of the public enemy and the Nasty Boys. As we see Sags laying across that table with Rocco Rock ready to go up top and deliver. Who knows what he's going to deliver? Well, he, he judging by his, his, his way of getting over the top rope and trying to climb up the top rope, hopefully he could deliver something that's going to be meaningful and impactful. But it doesn't look to be the case as he bounces off that table courtesy of a jerry sags beal from the chain the dog collar that is connected to one another in this match over in the corner there you see knobs and grunge laying into each other Ooh, knobs laying in with the chain right to the back of the neck and the head of johnny grunge not wasting any any amount of links on those chains as they punish each other. Sags rolling the chain on the other side in the back of your screen there. Set to, looks like he's going to deliver some kind of elbow drop off the top of the second rope. Is he going to make it up top? No, he's just going to stick to the second rope. And boom, to the chest. Table still didn't break. Nowadays, (laughs) Nowadays, <laughs> I don't know what's up with those tables in 1996, but nowadays the tables now, and you know whether it's the tables that are under the ring or the announce tables, those tables get knocked over if if uh, you know somebody coughs too hard. You know <laughs> they're so delicate and sensitive. Whereas this table here has suffered two 300 pound plus men bouncing each other off of it, and it hasn't cracked or broken in half once, which says something about the strength of the table but also what that table did to both individuals and this definitely doesn't age well knobs hanging johnny grunge over the top rope by that dog collar and ooh, clotheslining literally with that chain rock oh rock as Johnny Grunge out on the floor. Nasty Boys get the cover and the victory in this four-corner dog-collar tag team match here at WCW Bash at the Beach. Very interesting. 
and uh, non-scientific wrestling match here as the action still continues. Ooh, low blow by Rocco Rock to Jerry Sags with the chain. Johnny Grunge making his way into the ring, looking to get a piece of knobs, setting the table up again. Don't know what's really happening here other than the fact that these four guys still want a piece of each other. Ooh, a chain to the back of the head. Yeah, that's no fun. That's not a fun way to spend a Sunday night in Daytona Beach, that's for sure. So we see plunder everywhere, baby. Somebody just went through the table, broken the table right in half. There's Uncle Thags, baby. Jerry Thags went right through the table. Cody's uncle, for those of you unaware... Cody Rhodes apparently his uncle is Jerry Sags who was laying in the middle of that table apparently Sags married uh, one of Dusty Rhodes' sisters if I'm not mistaken could be wrong I've heard that somewhere but didn't care to do my research on that so uh, that's just something I've heard you know, hopefully I can get somebody to confirm that as we see the replay here with Knobs and Sags hanging grunge and then clotheslining Rocco Rock with the chain as Sags going for the victory, barely hooking the leg. And I think Rocco Rock's foot was under the rope, but the referee did not see that, which is baffling to me. But then again, this is WCW, so why should I be uh, why should I be baffled by that? I mean, there's a reason why that company went out of business. There was a lot of mismanagement, disorganization. And here's another part of this show that I felt really enhanced the importance of the main event was the police officer standing in front of the locker room door of the outsiders and mean Gene Oakland trying to get the scoop as to who the third man is and who that guy, you know, whose voice is he hearing on the other side of that door that may be very familiar. This was something that when I watched this on VHS, not long after it was released at, at the video store, I thought to myself, man, I wish I saw this when it, when it was going on. Like, this this would have been so cool. And they they really heightened the, the, uh, the, the importance of uh, the danger that these two men, these outsiders, were to the roster and to WCW as a whole. It was definitely a, a, a very nice visual and something that... Uh, you know, made the, the main event must-see and very happening. And Gene Oakland being a part of this and, you know, answering all the questions and asking all the questions and going back to, uh, uh, you know, Tony Schiavone and talking to them and relaying what's going on. It had, this, it had like a, a breaking news kind of, you know, local news reporter kind of feel to it, uh, which I, uh, as a kid, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, here's something that's not cool. The Disco Inferno. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Disco Inferno coming down to the ring was 1996. I was not. I'd said, I mentioned this earlier. Sophisticated viewer I was becoming. But I was not. I didn't feel this was anything but sophisticated. As we see Disco entering the ring with the Disco ball hanging over the ring as he's set to compete for the Cruiserweight Championship, which was another issue of mine. I always equated Cruiserweight wrestling as high-flying, risk-taking, 
And Disco did not exemplify or exude any of those attributes or qualities to be a cruiserweight wrestler. Um, I just didn't see it. And I, I thought Disco, and this is not me fantasy booking here, but this is me as a kid thinking Disco would have been a good tag team partner or a good protege to the Honky Tonk Man. If they had resurrected Honky Tonk Man to be his manager or his tag team partner or protege or whatever, I thought that could have worked for him because this character was not serious enough for me. He had some good comedic moments at times growing up. But for me, I could not take him seriously. And as a cruiserweight especially, he did not fit the bill as a cruiserweight wrestler. So him wrestling Dean Malenko for the cruiserweight championship, for me, I had no interest in it. Um, I just didn't see the... I didn't see what the appeal was. I really didn't. I didn't understand why at the beginning of this program they give you the the quintessential cruiserweight wrestling match that you would expect from WCW between two guys like Rey Mysterio and Psychosis. And then the actual cruiserweight champion comes out and he's wrestling the fucking Saturday night boogie fever wannabe, the disco inferno. I just didn't, didn't really do it for me. And Malenko here, um, as the cruiserweight champion reminded me a lot of in terms of in-ring style, And the serious tone that he brought reminded me a lot of Arn Anderson. Not not by any stretch of the imagination uh, was he as good as Arn Anderson. And was he on Arn Anderson's level? But I felt like he was like a mini Arn Anderson. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but he was like the cruiserweight version of double A. He got it done in the ring. He was all business. And he... He made you believe that he could hurt you, but he did it in a very scientific way, a very technical manner because of his in-ring ability. He was the man of a thousand holds. He was the ice man, Dean Malenko. It was for me as a kid, uh, he was the, he was the top bad guy of the cruiserweights at that time. And, uh, I didn't have any investment emotionally into him as a character, but, Uh, I just didn't see the appeal in him defending the Cruiserweight Championship against a Disco Inferno. I envisioned him with, you know, Rey Mysterio from the month prior at Great American Bash and all the other luchadors like Psychosis and Juventud Guerrero, who we'd eventually see. Jericho, we would eventually see make his debut uh, a few months after this in WCW. Just didn't have any invested interest into this match and i still don't to this day but i will do my best for all you listeners here to uh to to make it through this match with you as we see malenko delivering a nice brain buster vertical suplex don't see them don't see many brain busters in wrestling these days uh, first time i ever witnessed the brain buster was uh tully blanchard i want to say delivered a really solid brain buster with malenko here Delivering a rear headlock, chin lock, now turning it into a scissor lock of sorts to the head of Disco Inferno. Malenko picking apart the upper body of the Disco Inferno, working on the head and the neck. As we see uh, Saturday Night Fever trying to fight his way out of this.
Yeah, just uh, I will say though, Malenko. Like I said, wasn't the biggest fan of him, but I respected what he was able to bring in the ring as a kid and enjoyed some of his stuff in later years uh, when he wrestled uh, Jericho about two years later for the Cruiserweight title. And Jericho was the the bad guy and Malenko was the good guy. And uh, it was a really good story of just Jericho humiliating Malenko and making fun of his family roots and where he came from being a second generation wrestler and always finding a loophole to get out of uh, defending the cruiserweight title and screwing him out of the championship. I thought that stuff was really good uh, between the two of them and probably some of the best stuff Dean Malenko had done at that time. Uh, I enjoyed Malenko's work in the horseman, even though that version of the horseman just kind of uh, fizzled out very quickly. His tag team with Benoit at that time in the horseman and their stuff they did, with uh, Raven and Saturn and uh, DDP, I believe, and, and the Jersey Triad. That stuff was a lot of fun. Kidman and Rey Mysterio, I think, at one point had a run against them for the tag team titles a couple years later. And then, of course, uh, Malenko's run in the WWF, him being light heavyweight champion with his experience as the cruiserweight champion and kind of being the glue that helped keep the cruiserweight division together it made sense for him to be the light heavyweight champion but i really dug that whole dean malenko being the old perverted ladies man uh, where he was very affectionate towards lita and they had had a uh a little on-screen uh, romance or at least that's what malenko thought at the time was an on-screen romance with Lita as she seduced him to her, her hotel room only to find the Hardy Boys hiding and attacking Malenko. Uh, Malenko thinking he was going to get up in them guts of uh, Lita. And it turned out uh, he, uh, he he scored a big fat zero that night. He did not round the bases uh, with Lita, but that was some of the. That, those are just some of my memories of Dean Malenko and what he contributed to the business. Now he's uh, a backstage agent for WWE, helping produce uh, matches and segments, and I'm sure that he's a big part of the cruiserweight division and the 205 Live show on the WWE Network. You can find live every Tuesday night. I don't think they need me to promote it or shill it, but I'll do it anyways because it's the right thing to do. Uh, I'm sure he's a big part of that stuff. And uh, his contributions, yeah, they can't really go uh, unnoticed. Disco Inferno, on the other hand, I can't really uh, find too many positive things to say about his career. Like I said, he had some good comedic moments, but for the most part, what do I remember about the Disco Inferno? Uh, he was the WCW TV champion, and he was a solid wrestler, but couldn't take him seriously. He lost to a woman on pay-per-view and lost the WCW TV title to Jacqueline. Nothing wrong with that, by the way, but at that time, it was very controversial. And I would guess, I'd venture to guess that that's probably his most memorable moment was that storyline with Jacqueline about a year or so later for the TV title. Because he just, uh, he didn't really do it. He did not really do it for me. He didn't grab me creatively. He didn't, I, I couldn't invest in him. I really couldn't. I just, I was always changing the channel when he was on. Unless he was wrestling somebody I liked and I wanted to see that guy beat him up. And, uh, you know, 
I, I certainly didn't care for Disco as a member of the NWO Wolfpack when he was like the Wolfpack's little weasel and he was kind of in the group, but he wasn't. You know what I mean? Like he kind of put himself in the group, but they didn't really acknowledge him as a member of the group, although they would allow him to do their dirty work and make him think he was a part of the group. At least that's how it came across to me as a viewer on screen. Uh so yeah, those are my Disco Inferno memories. As I'm, I'm talking over a, a pretty solid match, I'll say, despite the fact that you know I didn't like Disco in the Cruiserweight division, didn't buy it, didn't believe it, didn't like his character in general, wasn't really emotionally invested in him or Malenko for that matter. The fact that they're two bad guys, and I had a hard time picking which guy I wanted to root for. Um, I probably leaned towards Malenko in this situation, but I don't remember back that far in 1996. It was 22 years ago, which, by the way, for those of you listening, as I'm recording this, um, or as I began recording this, I should say, we were at the uh we were going into the the anniversary the 22 year anniversary of this event july the 7th 1996 and as i'm recording this it is july the 7th 2018 22 years later and like i said one of the reasons why i chose this event to do as a pilot episode and as a watch along was because the moment that took place in the main event involving Hulk Hogan had such a huge impact, just not only on the business, but me as a fan. And it was around this point in time, just with wrestling in general, that my viewing habits began to change where I was, like I said, becoming a little more sophisticated. I had just learned of, you know, wrestling news sites and rumors and gossip. So I was, I I would look at some of that stuff, but I was I've always prided myself on being someone that doesn't live and die by what you see and and read on the internet regarding uh, rumors and innuendo, as Bruce Pritchard would say. I took things with a grain of salt, um, and. I always did that from the get-go, and I still do to this day. I'll still read stuff, but, I mean, I'm not buying all of it until it happens in front of me on the screen. Um, and in 96, at this time, I don't think – I may have it may have been this time or maybe not too long after this event where I managed to stumble upon a, a wrestling news site on America Online. Talk about dating yourself. America Online, where you had to, uh, you know, make sure nobody used the telephone in your home so that you can get the internet so that you can log on and it could take you about six hours to log on because of the, because of the speed of the internet at the time, it would make that funny noise, like, <laughs> like that, uh, waking everybody up if you were going on the internet late at night, like I was at times. And, uh, yeah, I, I stumbled upon this uh, news site and I answered some trivia questions in a trivia contest. And the guy that was running it at the time thought I was, I, I had done such a good job that he allowed me to write a couple of like editorial pieces. And I was 13 years old at the time. And my, my grammar and my English was, was horseshit and it still is to this day so i'm surprised that they allowed me to do the the three or four pieces i did but it was not too long after this time when uh, i did i started to uh it was a combination of being very sophisticated and um 
not buying everything I was seeing on the TV screen when it came to wrestling and being more open-minded as a viewer. This is, I think, where my variety came in, where I was into a variety of things in wrestling. And the other part of that combination was finding the internet and the my introduction to the dirt sheets uh, which like I said I don't live and die off of them now and I didn't then I do read a fair amount but a lot of it's for entertainment purposes and um, some of the editorial pieces and just to get other people's opinion I see a lot of negative opinions on there these days about just about everything you see in wrestling um, it's either Roman Reigns sucks and WWE doesn't know what they're doing or Kenny Omega and the Bulletproof the Bulletproof the Bullet Club excuse me is God and they're the, the gift to wrestling that's going to save the industry that's usually what I see and then at the bottom of those headlines it's opinions of guys that have no experience in wrestling like myself but I would like to think that um, my opinion is lighthearted realistic and non-confrontational when it comes to my viewing of professional wrestling as we are talking over like i said earlier a pretty solid match between these two despite the fact that i didn't really care for either one of them you see uh malenko and disco going back and forth here with disco attempting a swinging neck break but now malenko countering it hopefully for a backslide knee to the gut another kick to the gut and Malenko here with what looks to be a double underhook powerbomb combo into the Texas Cloverleaf. Kind of haul him over. And there you see Disco giving up and your winner and still WCW Cruiserweight Champion Dean Malenko. With the audience on their feet and look to be in favor of... Uh, as Jericho would say, Stinko Malenko retaining his championship. The WCW Cruiserweight title was a pretty neat-looking belt. I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of uh, championship belts, and my holy grail of uh, you know wrestling collectibles is a, is a few different things. I'd love to get a piece of like Randy Savage's like ring, ring gear, whether it was like a boot or you know a set of tights or maybe like one of his cowboy hats or a jacket or even a robe you know something along those lines but the other uh big piece of wrestling memorabilia i would love whether it's a replica or if it's excuse me the real thing i would love the the wwf championship from 1987 the belt that hogan wore when he wrestled andre the giant uh, it's probably my favorite belt of all time and there's been a lot of great championship belts over the years the cruiserweight championship belt looks pretty solid and i definitely uh i dug the look of it but my favorite belt of all time the wwf championship from 1987 i know that like at hogan's beach shop in in tampa i think he's selling it autographed for like three thousand dollars and i'm like no fucking thank you that's not happening and speaking of what's not happening is the popularity of this individual here joe gomez who the fuck is joe gomez who the fuck was joe gomez in 1996, I didn't know who the fuck Joe Gomez was. I didn't care who Joe Gomez was. And I hate to be like that, but there was no emotional investment. And in why should I care about Joe Gomez wrestling this individual, the newest member 
of the four horsemen there you see on the video screen as he's being accompanied by his then wife deborah who in 1996 and even to this day i've seen some pictures of her she was and still is all the way live and i'll just leave it at that uh gorgeous woman honey if you're listening i love you <laughs> and i'm talking to my wife nicole not deborah uh, as we see steve mcmichael in his pay-per-view debut singles match as a member of the four horsemen wrestling joe gomez to the best of my recollection Joe Gomez and Steve McMichael had issues with each other because Joe Gomez didn't like the fact that McMichael had turned on his best friend, Kevin Green, and joined the Four Horsemen. Now, not knowing who the fuck Joe Gomez was at that time, um, I still didn't really care what he what his involvement was here. And I hate to bag on the guy uh, whatsoever, but... There was just nothing about this match that was appealing to me. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. As we see Mongo putting the boots and chopping them in the corner to Joe Gomez. My Steve, my memories of Steve McMichael, I mean, his time in the Horseman was okay. I wasn't uh, the biggest fan of him in the Horseman. But my most... F- my favorite and most fond memory of him in wrestling was um, the brief stint he had in the WWF as a part of the Lawrence Taylor Bam Bam Bigelow buildup for the uh, the WrestleMania 11 main event in 1995. It was a year before this. Uh, Lawrence Taylor, big fan of him. I'm a big New York Giants football fan. And of course, I'm a big wrestling fan. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. And I thought it was so cool that two worlds were colliding my favorite football team my favorite football player was going to be a part of the the most favorite thing i like to watch on tv and that was pro wrestling and lt at the time had assembled his all pro team to back him up and be in his corner because bam bam bigelow had the million dollar man and the million dollar corporation backing him up so part of that team was i think ken norton jr chris spielman reggie jackson uh reggie white uh, and uh, Steve McMichael were a part of that. And there might have been like one or two. Carl Banks, excuse me. Carl Banks was also part of that. A few other guys might have been a part of that as well. And I'll never forget, I was young, and I didn't get to stay up and watch a whole lot of Monday Night Raw when I was a kid. because It was on late, and I had a bedtime, and I listened to my parents at the time. Uh, so there was one instance in particular where I happened to be allowed to be up late or... Uh, my parents weren't really paying attention, but I was watching an episode of Monday Night Raw, and Steve McMichael was a guest on Monday Night Raw, and he was in the, the commentator's table, and he was commenting uh, during a match. I don't remember exactly what that match was. And a member of the Million Dollar Corporation who went by the name of the Supreme Fighting Machine, comma, was a part of the Million Dollar Corporation, and he was also, um, you know, making his way to the ring to confront Steve McMichael. And they had some words. And these two ended up having a major pull-apart brawl. It was very reminiscent of what you would see in, like, Mike Tyson boxing uh, press conferences where it would take an army of people to get these two off each other. And it came across as so believable, so real, that I remember as a kid, I couldn't wait for not only LT to get in the ring with Bam Bam, but like what these guys from both the Million Dollar Corporation and 
LT's all pro team that were going to be accompanying him to the ring, what they were going to do with each other in the match, especially Steve McMichael and Kama. And I also remember thinking to myself, shoot, McMichael, he could be, he could be a, 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 a wrestler someday. He's just, he just had something about him at that time where I realized that uh, he could be a player and definitely fit into the WWF. I mean, along with LT, I just thought like it would have worked. And then, of course, excuse me, he uh, joins WCW, becomes a commentator, and then he does this horse shit with the horsemen. And I just didn't really, I didn't really get into it. I, I think I wanted to see him in 1996 in the WWF on his own, maybe even doing something with Kama, the Supreme Fighting Machine. Excuse me, let me catch my breath here as I take a drink. As we see, <coughs> excuse me, Joe Gomez delivering a jawbreaker to Steve McMichael. Probably the only amount of offense Joe Gomez had in this match. As we see some guy in the front row with a big old beer belly coming back from the, the beer stand because he probably knew this match stunk too. And he was like, who the fuck is Joe Gomez? That's going to be the theme of this match. Who the fuck is Joe Gomez? Or who the fuck was Joe Gomez? If you knew who Joe Gomez was, if you cared who Joe Gomez was, slide into my DMs, but do it appropriately because my wife will be pretty pissed to any one of the kicking out it to social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, get there when it gets set up. As we see Steve Mongo McMichael here signaling for the figure for, oh, Gomez rolling him up. Oof, and a two count referee Pee Wee Anderson signaling the two count Gomez not that close from beating Mongo but actually had a fighting chance with that roll up there as we see Steve McMichael now really kicking things into high gear if you look closely okay because of the ring gear that both of them are wearing even the skin tone both of them seem to have pretty decent tans and their hair you probably couldn't tell which one was Mongo and which one was Joe Gomez unless you, you know, really knew who they were like I did. Back body drop by Gomez to McMichael. Trying to catch his breath and, ugh. Yeah, just not a fan. Not a fan of this match. Didn't really do it for me. These awful looking tomahawk chops. Oh my goodness. This is just brutal. This is just brutal. Nobody cares. You see more people going up to the, the concession stands, leaving their seats right now, than you see sitting here watching this match. Because they don't care. Because why are they going to care? What's this guy Joe Gomez? What's he do for you creatively? How do you connect with him? Honestly, how do you connect with him? You don't. You can't. I certainly didn't. Going for a sunset flip roll up and a kick. Oh, here we go. Here's the end right here. Thank God. Mongo with a tombstone to Gomez. One, two, three. It's all over. Thank God. Holy shit. 
That was fucking awful to watch. I'm I'm apologizing to all you listening right now that had to listen to me complain about how bad this match was and how awful the match was that you were watching in front of you. I am truly sorry that I had to put you through that. I really am. Hopefully I don't have to do anything like that again. I might, but I'm not going to I'm not going to promise that, okay? As we see Mongo and Deborah making their way out of here. Like I said, if you just look quick glance, you wouldn't be able to tell which one's which, which one's Mongo and which one's Gomez, because they both look very similar in terms of the hairstyle, the color of their ring gear, their their body type, their tans, you know, stuff like that. <coughs> Excuse me, let me adjust my myself here. As we get to our next match, our next match being for the United States Championship. As we see Mean Gene Okerlund, along with Miss Elizabeth, woman, and the challenger for the United States Championship, the nature boy Ric Flair. Uh, well, I mean, after watching Joe Gomez and, uh, and uh, Steve McMichael, this is a breath of fresh air right here. Uh, but like I had said earlier at, the, at the, the top of this podcast when Oakland was interviewing Conan, I just didn't understand why Conan was the United States champion, a virtual nobody that nobody really seemed to care about. Um, and this role that Flair was in, because I thought for sure Flair could have been a guy that wrestled for Team WCW against the Outsiders, but... That didn't happen for whatever reason. I did enjoy Flair and the Horsemen having, you know, these uh, you know, beautiful valets, especially Elizabeth. Uh, Miss Elizabeth was my first celebrity crush as a kid. Um, beautiful woman. Gone way too soon. Same thing with uh, Nancy Benoit, uh, woman to, to the right that is uh, caressing Gene Oakland's chin and whispering sweet nothings into his ear while Ric Flair is cutting a promo of a lifetime probably telling everyone where you can find him which end of the bar you can find him at the marriott in daytona beach after the show is over um definitely enjoyed the uh the association of flair with elizabeth especially going back to the interaction they had leading up to the wrestlemania 8 match with rick flair and randy savage and the whole controversy of uh, the, the doctored pictures from the WWF magazine showing Flair was with Liz before Macho Man. And I just remember as a kid getting that magazine and being outraged. And I couldn't wait for Randy Savage to to rip Ric Flair's head off at WrestleMania and take the WWF title. And uh, it just made sense that uh, Flair and Liz kind of had an on-screen association in WCW based off of that storyline even though it wasn't really based off that storyline um, they kind of alluded to the history at certain points when Flair and Savage are having their issues and of course alluding to Savage and Elizabeth being divorced and um, it was uh, it was definitely good stuff it was some of the better stuff that was that was going in WCW despite the fact that the rest of the show at the time um, I wouldn't say was unwatchable but it felt like it was in a holding pattern. And then, of course, you know, we have the Outsiders, which, you know, would eventually turn into the NWO storyline. So, um, woman, a very intimidating looking woman. I remember as a kid 
always thinking she was very beautiful, but also realizing that she could probably hurt most men, including myself. And I was only 13 and I wasn't a man, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, Flair's still going on and on and on. Holy cow. And uh, what's with uh, everyone in the locker room hanging their T-shirts over the locker? Same T-shirts. Everyone's got the same T-shirt, apparently, in that locker room. And here we go. The WCW United States Heavyweight Championship is up for grabs. As we saw the challenger speaking, here comes the champion. Like I said, Conan. Conan won the title a few months earlier against the one-man gang of all people. I wasn't sure why he was the WCW champion, but nonetheless, uh, Conan defeated him for it. And a few months later, here we are, as he's set to defend the championship against Ric Flair at the 1996 Bash at the Beach. Like I was telling you earlier, just didn't connect with his character, thought he was an outsider. Why is he the United States champion? Don't know who you are, don't care who you are. That was then. I mean, he made some great contributions in the industry today, or up until today, with the stuff he did as part of the NWO Wolf Pack, uh, his creative mind that he has brought to uh, Mexican wrestling, helping introduce the Lucha Libre style to the mainstream by bringing a lot of those luchadors, like I said, Mysterio, Psychosis, Juventud, brought them originally to ECW and Paul Heyman a year or so prior, and then uh, brought them to WCW and exposed the Lucha Libre uh, to North American wrestling fans. And then, of course, his time in TNA as uh, the leader of the Latin American Exchange, he's still do he's still got an on-screen role with Impact Wrestling, leading LAX, which I think is pretty cool. So uh, he's definitely uh, very underrated for some of the contributions he's made, but a lot of that stuff seems to be more behind the scenes than what he did in front of the camera. As we see Slick Rick with the pink robe making his way down the ring, set to compete for the United States Championship. Accompanied by the beautiful, gorgeous Miss Elizabeth and stunning woman. It's unfortunate, though, that those two women no longer here with us. Both untimely passings. Miss Elizabeth's, you know, was it was a shocker for me, but. Uh, the, obviously, the, the passing of woman and the circumstances surrounding Nancy's passing with Chris Benoit. Not something I'm sure I'm going to get into. Uh, even though I'm pretty honest and I'm not afraid to talk about the subject and my thoughts on it. Uh, like I said, I want this to be a fun podcast, very lighthearted. And I just don't think I would be able to, to find the right words to describe my feelings on that subject without offending someone. So that's probably not something I'm going to get into regarding the, the murder-suicide tragedy involving her and Chris Benoit and their, and their young son. As we're set to go, Conan and Flair locking up, collar and elbow tie-up in the corner, Flair with the upper hand, the signature woo to the face by the nature boy, trying to 
intimidate Conan, play a little mind games, if you will. Yeah, 1996 Ric Flair. I mean, he started off the year pretty hot, you know, working matches with Hogan and Randy Savage and even Sting. He was the world champion a few times. And then it seems like the tail end of this year just he kind of took a downturn after the stuff with Randy Savage and then of course the invasion, the hostile takeover with the outsiders. Flair kind of uh, fell off the radar a little bit and even in 1996 I thought it was kind of silly that he was wrestling someone like Conan but by the same token I was I was my my sophisticated viewing habits and were taking over my thoughts and I had I had thought to myself, well, someone who is a recognizable name and someone that I'm familiar with could could potentially beat him for the United States Championship. So I was looking forward to um the, the potential of Flair wearing the United States title. Uh and at that time, I believe, uh, um, I wasn't aware of this until years later. Uh, that wasn't the first time Flair would be the United States champion. He had runs with it in Georgia, in Georgia Championship Wrestling, and I think a couple of runs maybe. I could be wrong. I don't have all the information in front of me. Maybe I should when I'm doing a podcast like this. Maybe you want to hear every single minute detail. But at the same time, I, want, I don't want to come across like a statistic machine. Uh, I want to do something a little different, so I want to just kind of give you my honest, genuine thoughts, spitball with you a little bit. If I'm right, I'm right. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't have any issues with admitting that. Uh, as we see Conan and Flair here, a little test of strength. Headlock, front face headlock by Conan to Flair. You know, with uh, with uh, these two in the ring, it reminds me a lot of uh, of uh, a lot of mismatch. I wouldn't say talents, but I guess you could say a lot of mismatches I've seen in wrestling history, and uh, guys that just didn't like look like they belonged in the ring together. And this is a situation where. Uh, I can just tell right off the bat that, like, there's just not a whole lot of chemistry there between the two of them. And it reminds me of a few instances where you just saw some guys that just didn't fit well together in the ring. I just felt like they didn't have that magic. It didn't come to me. Um, perfect example in more recent times, I would have to say, was probably Triple H and Brock Lesnar and their series of matches that they had um, in 2012 and 2013 and Brock's early run and his return. And I was really looking forward to the matches because both guys, especially Triple H, you know, student of the game, so to speak, and he definitely uh, has created some memorable moments and with a lot of big names. And I thought, you know, the the intensity that Brock Lesnar brings along with Triple H's intensity, they'll definitely make for some, for some good matches. And they kind of fell flat to me, all of them, even the cage match. They had three matches against each other, and um, all three, in my opinion, fell flat. Just didn't have that it for me. Uh, no chemistry. Um, the, 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 the in-ring in terms of their abilities to execute the moves and to tell the story was there 
uh, you know, I'm not saying that like that, you know, they they weren't good in performing and the performance in and of itself, but the stories that were told, I just wasn't, I I wasn't a fan. It just didn't didn't grab me, and I'll be using that term a lot too. You've probably already heard it quite a bit on this on this podcast here. Uh, and these two aren't grabbing me either. But uh, what's interesting about Flair in this role is that despite being the bad guy and they're being per- portrayed as the bad guy, I think because Flair has such a established resume going into this match and because people don't know who Conan is that a lot of people wanted to you know cheer for Flair and see Flair win this match uh, and that's no disrespect to Conan's talent and his ability but um, you, you, you put someone who's not really recognizable to North American wrestling fans and to the WCW fan base against the probably the most recognizable name in the history of WCW, Ric Flair. And uh, the people just don't really care to see it. And I think this match, you could see with the people in the arena that they just did not care. And they and the only thing they cared about was to see Flair win. And I'm kind of right there with all of them. Uh, you saw Miss Elizabeth take a little bump there as Conan flew off the apron to deliver uh, some kind of a plancha. And this is interesting, too. Referee standing right there, okay? Woman shakes the bottom rope, which causes the rest of the ropes to shake as Conan's on top, knocking him off. Now, back in the day, before this, that would be considered a disqualification. Conan would retain the United States title. So either there was some sort of no disqualification stipulation that I wasn't aware of before this match, or... Nick Patrick, fuck that up. <laughs> uh, Flair with a knee to the forehead of Conan. Vintage Ric Flair. Stealing that knee drop from Harley Race. As he goes for the cover. Two. Kick, kick out by Conan. Yeah, and, and, and the Miss Elizabeth bump, even though it was, it was brief and not as... Uh, not as uh, uh, effective as the one from uh, Saturday Night's main event, 1989. Uh, Hogan and Savage against the Akeem and the big boss man. And, ooh, low blow by woman to Conan as the referee is distracted. Now he turns around so she can make her presence felt in this match. Uh, that bump that she, I'm sorry, Miss Elizabeth took as I get back on that subject and finish my thought there was brutal Uh, savage practically landed on her head Uh, as a kid it made me believe that she really was knocked out and maybe she was i don't know but seeing her take that bump here you know with conan and flair and her getting up pretty quickly reminded me a lot of the uh, the saturday night's main event uh, when that was the night that the mega powers officially exploded it was over as we see Miss Elizabeth getting involved, Flair tossing Conan over the top rope so that woman can get a piece of Conan on the other side of the ring. While Flair and uh, Elizabeth keep referee Nick Patrick distracted over there. 
Conan getting his eye worked by woman, which will set up the finish later. Vertical suplex by Ric Flair to Conan down, crashing on the mat as he's going for cover. One, two, kick out. Oof. One, two, kick out again. That's two. Going for a third cover. Kicked out again. Going for a fourth cover. And he kicks out again. And I think you can see because of the, the lack of chemistry and things just aren't working between the two of them. You saw Flair like aggressively lift Conan up. And just by the look on his face, I could, I'm just guessing. I, I could be wrong, but he did not look very happy with how that sequence of events had turned out. Um, as he's now, you know, just trying to put Conan in a rest hold so he can figure out the next plan of attack and setting up this story here. Yeah. Once again, Conan, Flair, 1996, did not care. Conan, Flair, 2008, still don't care. Conan, also a part of uh, the MLW Radio Network, doing a podcast, I believe, with uh, Court Bauer from MLW and uh, Disco Inferno. Uh, I know he's done, uh, you know, between that and his stuff with Impact Wrestling, his role with uh, uh, AAA out of Mexico. Uh, I think he had a slight role in the first season of uh, the Lucha Underground, not on screen, but behind the scenes. I believe he was a part of developing that as well. Conan, definitely still a big player in the business. Best friends with Rey Mysterio, uh, which we discussed earlier. Uh, Conan not getting enough credit for helping bring the Lucha Libre style to America. People want to credit Paul Heyman for that, and I think Paul Heyman does deserve some credit for giving those talents that platform to to perform on but it was conan that that made it all happen by getting those guys over there and helping get them the exposure so i think conan deserves a lot of that credit as we see woman cheering flair on in hopes that you know he can get back into it and get back in the saddle again Flair here making his way up the apron into the into the ring and what's this so he gets in only to tell Conan please don't do this to me don't hurt me I can't do this anymore what's this patty cake high five yeah this just wasn't a good match you could see no chemistry the timing's off the communication's not there I know Flair has said before in, in, in interviews in the past that he didn't appreciate the way WCW treated him. They relegated him to the middle of the card, and he had to work with Conan. Uh, maybe this was the match that, that really uh, uh, is behind that statement. I don't know, but not a very good match. Not the match. You know, everyone has said Ric Flair can wrestle a broomstick or Ric Flair can wrestle a stack of bricks and it'd be entertaining. Well, Ric Flair is wrestling um, Conan and. It's not entertaining at all. This is probably the this is probably the only Ric Flair match I could say is really bad. Um, and I don't like to be that way. I like to be you know positive, lighthearted, and fun when it comes to discussing historical moments in pro wrestling. But this match here, this match is 
is not on the it will certainly not make a best of Ric Flair it probably didn't make the Ric Flair collections uh, piece on the WWE Network in fact I think there's two if I'm not mistaken and what was that all about Flair goes to try and get to the rope so he can break the hold Nick Patrick kicks him did he forget too that that's allowed yeah this match is just all off it's it's very off both guys seemed off just not see even that guy in the white shirt that just stood up he is like let's just end this shit already all right let's just be done with it i gotta go take a piss get another beer before the main event come on let's go hurry the fuck up so we see conan sending flair and elbow to the back by rick flair Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what he's waiting for. Top rope now by the Nature Boy signature Ric Flair. He's practically got to tell Conan how to do this. <laughs> this is awful. A little delayed there. Face plant sends Flair down. Going for the cover. One, two. Please kick out. Okay, Flair kicking out. Conan not victorious as of yet. Sends him in again. Boom, rolling thunder clothesline by Conan. Two, kick out by Flair. Two count, says referee Nick Patrick. I don't know how many more times I could say how bad this match is. Like this part right here. What the hell is that? Like a really messed up abdominal stretch that Conan somehow turned into some pinning combination, which I don't even think it was meant to be. Thank God the referee was distracted and didn't even count that atrocity of a pinning combination because it was fucking brutal to watch. And did I mention, what the fuck is Conan wearing? It looks awful. It looks awful. I would accept Conan wearing a baby's diaper than this shit that he's wearing right now. As we see Flair distracting the referee, and boom, woman hitting Flair with the corner of her heel into the eye that she had put damage on earlier on the outside of the floor. And please, thank God. And what, yep, Flair putting the feet on the ropes because referee Nick Patrick making the count could not tell that Flair was putting his feet on the ropes. Finally, the match is over. You could see that the fans on their feet, thank fucking God. This match is over with, they're saying. Look at them all. They're standing up. That's the mo That's another match where, aside from Flair's entrance, which they probably popped for, they didn't care about this match. And they only cared about when Flair won. And thank God that's over. That was, that was awful. That was 15 minutes that I can't get back from my life. And I have another match that I'm really sorry that you guys had to sit here and watch. As we get back to Mean Gene Oko, and this is the part of the show where I remember him describing that he's listening to a familiar voice on the other side of that door, but he can't make out who it is. Um, and once again displaying the the level of importance going into this match the future of wcw 
riding on the shoulders of Sting, Randy Savage, and Lex Luger. But the mystery behind who the third man is and who the outsiders have chosen to be their third partner to face WCW. It was very well done and very important in making this event must-see and happening, despite the undercard not really delivering on this show. Uh, you go back in time, nobody, I, I, with the exception of me, I don't think anybody watches Bash at the Beach to see the rest of this card, maybe with the exception of Mysterio and uh, Guerrero, or, um, Psychosis, excuse me. The main event is what everyone talks about. The main event is what sold this event. The main event is what I think made WCW Bash at the Beach relevant. Uh, it was a fun event before, but I think the main event in this match and this moment that, that will take place later on was made was what made WCW Bash at the Beach such a popular event for WCW at that time. Um they had done some innovative stuff with Bash at the Beach. Hogan made his debut two years prior to Bash at the Beach. The year before this, in, in 95, they had the event on the beach in Huntington Beach, California. But this match and this event was what made it very possible. As we get to the, the second-to-last match before we reach the main event here, another, another match pitting the Four Horsemen against the Dungeon of Doom. Arn Anderson, Chris Benoit, representing the Four Horsemen as they're set to face the Giant, who is the WCW World Heavyweight Champion, and Kevin Sullivan. Whoever pinned the Giant in this match uh, would receive a future WCW World Heavyweight title match. I think that's what it was. Either that or if the Horsemen won, someone from the Horsemen would receive an opportunity at the WCW title. As the action is underway, both teams brawling out on the floor. And there you see Steve McMichael delivering a shot to the back with that Halliburton baiting the giant into leaving his partner Kevin Sullivan to deal with a two-on-one situation from the horseman. Now, I know I kind of alluded to this earlier, not you know, describing to you, the listeners, my desire not to discuss the Chris Benoit situation. I'll be honest with you, um, any time I've watched a Chris Benoit match, I can't get it out of my head to, you know, the last memory I have of him is what he's most known for, unfortunately, and that's the way that he left this earth with his wife and the sudden tragic events that took place. So um, I have a hard time covering a lot of Benoit stuff, but I will do my best here uh, because I did enjoy a lot of his work, uh, especially the stuff with Kevin Sullivan. A month prior at the Great American Bash, they had that awesome Falls Count Anywhere match. Their whole rivalry in general, I think, was awesome based on the uh, the real-life tension the two of them had because of the extramarital affair that uh, Nancy Sullivan, woman who we saw earlier with Ric Flair, she was married to Kevin Sullivan, the, the extramarital affair that she had with Chris Benoit and how, you know, the life imitated art or art imitated life um, with those two. The beatings they gave each other, absolutely brutal. The physicality of those matches between the two. Um, 
here with this match, that's probably the only thing that in 1996 at 13 years old that got me interested in this match was the fact that those two had a killer false count anywhere match because I didn't have any real desire or high hopes for this match. And that's another, it's another case of me not getting invested in two bad guys facing each other. These are two bad guy teams from two bad guy factions that are facing each other that have been in an alliance of sorts to try and end Hulkamania. And I just didn't have any, uh, I never care in the world to watch these two teams go at it, despite the fact that Arn Anderson was one of my favorites of all time. But we see Arn tagging Benoit and isolating the Taskmaster in their corner. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for if the story's told right, if it's two bad guys wrestling each other or two good guys wrestling each other. But for the most part, Good guy, good versus evil has always worked in wrestling. And there's been very rare exceptions. And I don't believe this instance was one of them. And I say that because... I say that because... hard for me to really explain as I'm as I'm losing my train of thought here and I want to apologize for that Um, the good versus evil concept just works it does and you know two bad guys wrestling each other I don't see the big payoff in it I don't see you know unless one of them is going to turn good and I didn't see that here with these two teams. The horsemen, to me, were always bad guys. They always were. I always looked at the four horsemen as bad guys. And Dungeon of Doom screamed bad guys. Just that silly name, Dungeon of Doom, just screamed bad guys. And so that's why I couldn't get into this match, aside from the fact that Sullivan and Benoit had some hellacious physical encounters, and aside from the fact that Arn Anderson was the first bad guy wrestler I ever enjoyed watching. Uh, This match just emotionally invested into it uh, I was not Kevin Sullivan an individual uh, most remember him probably for this role but the stuff he did in the early days of WCW part of the varsity club uh, the stuff he did in Florida championship wrestling with Dusty Rhodes Uh, this Dungeon of Doom stuff was awfully silly but Sullivan creatively behind the scenes I think was more of a force and uh, a guy who probably deserves his just due going into the WWE Hall of Fame for just his creativity alone I mean he helped you know, Eric Bischoff probably gets a lot of credit, and rightfully so, for creating the NWO. But Kevin Sullivan, I think, deserves a lot of credit for helping maintain the the level of controversy in the storytelling of the NWO storyline and the, the 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 creativity. He definitely knew how to. I mean, for a year and a half, when they came up with the 
the Sting loner storyline. You know, Sullivan was a big part of helping make that happen. And as a kid, I watched Nitro every single week in hopes that Sting would talk and Sting would go after the NWO. And um, Sting didn't have a Sting didn't have a match for over a year. And Sullivan, I think, it played a big part in that because of his role as a a booker, creative writer, whatever you want to call him. And uh, time in the WWF, I think, would have uh, would have definitely uh, helped maybe get him a, a Hall of Fame nod. But uh, I would have I would have loved to have seen what he'd done on screen in WWF if he would ever have made it, and even behind the scenes, because people don't give him enough credit for what he's contributed positively to the wrestling business from a behind the scenes role. And the guys that he's helped create and the guys that he helped make into stars. Here we see Benoit and Sullivan back at it again. Seems like the majority of this match is really about Benoit and Sullivan and Anderson and uh, the Giant are just there for window dressing, so to speak. Which, if that was the case, then why didn't they just put the two of them together in another Falls Count Anywhere match or a beach brawl or something? You know what I mean? Like, I was kind of baffled that this was a tag team match at the time. But I, like I said earlier, I liked the combination of Sullivan and the Giant together as a tag team. I thought that would have been better suited rather than uh, going with uh, the Dungeon of Doom, so to speak. And here we see the Giant getting the hot tag first time legally in this match as he's now making his way going after Arn Anderson. Anderson sliding right back into the ring. Another split screen action where Sullivan and Benoit are going to make their way past the beach is what it looks like. Looks like they're not even going to make it onto the beach. And they're going to go right up into uh, what looks to be the announcer's position, which was something different at that time. In 96, I think the only time I ever saw the wrestlers go at it at the announced position was that Diesel-Shawn Michaels match where Diesel powerbombed Michaels and uh, at, at the announced position when Vince McMahon was calling the action. It was at an in-your-house, good friends, better enemies in April of that year in 96. Uh, that was innovative at the time. You didn't see that. Then and here on the right, Giant choke slamming Arn Anderson for the victory. And your winners of this match, the Giant and Kevin Sullivan of the Dungeon of Doom. And Sullivan looking to make his way back to the ringside area to reunite with his partner. Look at that there. Benoit flying off the announcer's position into the sand. Putting the boots and the, the fisticuffs to Sullivan. These two guys just couldn't stop beating each other up. Here we go. Ooh, stiff chair shot. Here's a little CTE for you. More, uh... Horseman double team. And it was interesting. Where was the Giant? He was leaving. They should have crossed paths at one point. Where was the Giant? Why wasn't he there to meet Sullivan? Didn't really understand that. 
It's Benoit Hoist Sullivan up to the top to deliver a top rope suplex. And oh. Look at that there. Four horsemen reigning supreme as we see woman making her way down to the ringside area. She may play a pivotal role in this storyline considering she's the woman that they fought over. And it looks like she's, uh, she's pleading with Benoit to leave Kevin alone. Uh, hey, Toots. You're the reason why they're fighting. Now all of a sudden you got a change of heart. Now all of a sudden you got a conscience. As we see the uh, the audience get on their feet. Looks like someone's making their way to the ring. And there he is. The giant. Here to save Kevin Sullivan from another Chris Benoit beatdown. See the back of your screen. Arn Anderson powdering out, rolling out. Doesn't want a piece of the giant. It's the giant coming to the aid of the Taskmaster. Along with the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. Hoisting him over the shoulders. One leg over the top. Oh, he almost dropped him there. Jesus. Could you be any more clumsier? <laughs> Excuse me. Big show. Giant. Whatever you want to call him, Paul White, Captain Insano for any Waterboy fans out there. Certainly uh, one of the best big men of all time in wrestling. Didn't have much of a role in this match, but in the finish he certainly did. Here you see the choke slam for the victory. Referee counting the three, and the Giant and Kevin Sullivan. Are going to the going to the pay window, baby. That's right. They're going to the pay window. Arms and victory as we are just about going to this replay now. This is weird. WCW, when they showed replays, I noticed it watching this show. When they would show replays, they'd give you all the good stuff first. Like all the high impact moves and maybe even the finish. And then they'd show replays of like some of the, the, the less important moves or moments in the match. It's like almost like they went backwards, like trying to tell a story with the replay, which I found to be uh, quite confusing and annoying. They'll give you the finish, the finishing move, whatever the case is, and then once that's done, then they'll show the guy pose, and then they'll show something stupid or a move that took place before the finish. It's just, overall, it's just dumb. Didn't really care for it. As the see the overhead shot, the capacity crowd waiting in anticipation for this major main event, a match that would change wrestling on so many levels. As we see the hostile takeover, like I'd mentioned at the beginning of our of our podcast here, not really realizing, uh, you know the the importance of this match at the time. Um, with Hall and Nash making their entrance into WCW. <clears throat> Excuse me. I apologize for that. Uh, not being aware with the internet and things of that nature. Uh, I had a hard time understanding uh, 
even though I thought it was cool and this was a happening and I had to watch it and had to be a part of it, I was still having a hard time grasping that they were not a part of the WWF anymore. And I thought maybe this was just like a temporary thing that they were almost like trying this out to see if it would work, but hoping it wouldn't work. You know, at 13, I was like, I want Razor Ramon back in WWF. I want Diesel back in WWF. Um, I had a hard time understanding that. But at the same time, I also, it's weird. Like I said, it's a turning point for me in 96 as a fan. It was uh, my sophisticated viewing habits that were rearing its head. And it was like having a hard time at the same time uh, getting away from that old mentality of how I watched wrestling. But the sophisticated viewing habits were slowly, slowly, slowly taking over. And I think by this point with this match and then eventually the finish of this match is when I kind of, even though I was in disbelief of what took place, I was very uh, much on board with a lot of the changes that were taking place in the business. And you see Nash powerbombing Bischoff off the stage through that, that part of the set there of the Great American Bash, which that looked pretty devastating. And in 1996, I was like, holy cow. Like I, I mentioned earlier in the, the, the promo with the three of these men and me and Gene Oakland, I was really surprised that like Hogan wasn't a part of this team because he was looked at as like the, the face of WCW or Ric Flair, uh, even the giant who was the world champion. Like I thought those three names would have been at the top of my list. Um, and I was kind of hoping maybe it'd be like a four on four match. Maybe like we would see like another guy show up and another guy show up with these two. And you can get like Hogan, Flair, Savage, Giant, or Hogan, Flair, Savage, Sting, stuff like that. You know, I was kind of hoping for like the cream of the crop of WCW representing them against the Outsiders and uh, this hostile takeover. But um, we got what we got. And, you know, as you'll see here, and we're at the, the, the main event with Michael Buffer as our ring announcer, you'll see what... Uh, what has transpired and how we're probably better off with the way things went down in the history of wrestling. A little fun known fact here for you with Michael Buffer. Um, before Michael Buffer uh, became the, uh, the ring announcer for just the main events of pay-per-views for WCW and just the main events for Nitro, obviously he was a boxing announcer and Michael Buffer, uh, cornered the market on branding himself and being paid to just basically be who he was. Uh, he had sued MTV at one point and MTV had produced a jock jams CD that you could hear his let's get ready to rumble. You could hear that on the CD, like in between the songs and they were also part of the songs. He sued MTV, won the lawsuit. So basically every time you heard, let's get ready to rumble, he would get paid for it. Now, that carried over to his time in WCW. Not only did he get a flat rate or whatever he was under contract for to, to appear weekly on Nitro and monthly at, at, at pay-per-views just to do this for the main event, he would also get an additional amount of money. I believe it was like $5,000, uh, according to Tony Schiavone on the What Happened When podcast. I learned that recently which I thought that was insane. Like, not only are they paying you just to show up, but now they're going to pay you an additional amount of money to 
to say a certain catchphrase during your ring introductions. I thought that was wild. And uh, here was something that was wild to me as a kid. Kevin Nash weren't all red. Um, I was used to him as Diesel with the silver and the black, and seeing him with all red was was interesting. It was different. And uh, something that I could get accustomed to, because Nash was one of my favorites when he was Diesel, and red is one of my favorite colors. Hall here, uh, Scott Hall, used to donning different colors and adding, you know, a different color scheme to his ring gear and during his time as Razor Ramon, even as the Diamond Stud in uh, WCW in the early 90s, before he made the jump to WWF to be Razor Ramon. And this here, you see the audience on their feet. They know who these guys are. There's even a sign in the back that says Razor and Diesel. Um, another interesting moment that took place right around this time here. You'll see uh, you know, Sting's music plays prematurely. The pyro goes off, but you know, get a close-up shot. Gene Oakland is making his way to the ring because he's going to try and figure out where the third guy is. Who's the third guy? Where's your partner? Why isn't he showing up? And just another really cool moment and an important moment in this build-up as this match is about to take place that made for the reveal of Hulk Hogan being the third guy so impactful. You know, him qu him coming out here and just asking them, who's the third guy? Where is he? Where's your man? And Oakland just kind of had that like roving reporter kind of vibe to him that I thought was really good um, in some instances, but especially in this case because Hall and Nash's partner was a mystery and nobody knew uh, what was going to take place in that match between the, between the Outsiders and Team WCW, which I thought was a... I thought that whole, you know, Oakland's investigative reporting was done very well. As Nash is telling Oakland, two of us, there's enough of us right here. The third guy will show up when the time is right. As he sends Oracle into the back. Good stuff here. Can't say enough about how the storytelling really came into play and worked on so many cylinders for this match. Like I said, one match show. As Team WCW is making their entrance down the boardwalk here at Bash at the Beach 1996. See on the video screen some of the highlights of their interactions with the Outsiders going into this matchup. You see Lex Luger, the total package, former Made in the USA, Lex Luger, Sting, and Macho Man Randy Savage, the pyro. This was cool right here. To me, when I watched this, I was like, this is big time. This is a big deal. You know, just the, the visual of the, all them coming out with the paint, the pyro, the cops right there. You see the cops all on the guardrail. Um, just everything about this. This was executed so well. 
And imagine, imagine, let's put it to you this way, okay? I kind of brought this up earlier and I alluded to it and I wanted you all to take a moment to, or just kind of hold on to that thought and I'll remind you about it. But it's at this point right now, I want to remind you, I brought up Luger's character's intentions in the last few months leading up to this and his allegiance being questioned with Sting and Savage and there being some controversy surrounding, you know, the, the, the questionable nature of Lex Luger at times and how I was surprised that they were so accepting and giving of him as being the third partner on this WCW team. Okay. Now I thought going into this match that Luger was going to be the third guy. Luger had WWF affiliation from doing, from being the, uh, the made in the USA character, Lex Luger. He was familiar with, you know, Razor and Diesel or Hall and Nash, whatever you want to refer to them as from his time in the WWF. And he was just, he was questioned at, at just about every chance Savage could question him at times or sting with, with matches and, um, things that he did and his, uh, his association with Jimmy Hart and the dungeon of doom, which was really strange. It was short lived. I thought Luger was going to turn on these guys and be the third guy. And there's a moment in this match where here you see Scott Hall throwing the toothpick in Luger's face. Luger slaps him as we get things underway. Paintbrush by Hall twice with a kick in the gut. Another paintbrush here. Sends him into the ropes. Going for the clothesline duck. Luger forearm to Hall. Nailing Nash. Luger a house of fire as Hall sends Luger out to the floor on the ring apron. Luger clotheslines Hall. And this is the part right here, okay? This is the part where... Luger gets taken out of the match. Boom. Stinger splash. He gets sandwiched between Nash and the turnbuckle. I still thought at this moment that Luger could have been the third guy for Hall and Nash. That this was how they were going to take him out. And then eventually he'd come back. Now imagine. I want to kind of circle things back a little bit. Imagine all the important storytelling aspects of on this program that I mentioned earlier about the police officers being outside the dressing room and uh, the the police officers officers being standing guard at the announce table and um, Oakland uh, kind of doing that roving reporter and trying to get all the latest scoop on who the third guy was. Imagine if they did all of that only for Luger to be revealed as the third guy if he were to come back after this spot. I can guarantee you it wouldn't be as impactful than it was when Hogan came out and he was revealed as the third guy for Hall and Nash. But what would you think, or excuse me, what do, do you think, what do you think? Excuse me, losing it again. For, like I said, pilot episode. Losing my train of thought here. Let me start over again. Do you think it would have had as much of an impact? And I'm sure that a lot of you will probably say no because of the name value of Hulk Hogan and Lex Luger. It's like apples and oranges. But if you think about it, going along with what took place at w within the storylines in WCW at the time, it wouldn't have been that crazy to think that Luger would have been the third guy if you really go back and think about it because of his... Um, 
of, of his uh, rocky relationship with Randy Savage and Sting in the storyline. Uh, so for those of you wrestling historians out there, uh, maybe you got to go back and watch some old episodes of Nitro and some old WCW content so that you can kind of get a better understanding of where I'm coming from. And once again, I want to apologize for losing my train of thought. This is a pilot episode, and I'm just kind of testing things out here and seeing uh, what's going to work and what doesn't work and uh, hopefully I won't feel uh, as flustered when I'm trying to finish a thought like I just did a few moments ago so with that being said I apologize and uh, once again constructive criticism by all means I can take it so if there's something that I'm saying or how I'm saying it or how I'm delivering it and it doesn't work for you please shoot me a message Facebook Twitter Instagram when that time comes when I set up all of that and uh, I'll be doing my best to make sure the listening listening experience is good for you as now we are at a two-on-two even tag team situation with Sting and Randy Savage against the Outsiders which I think at this time I don't even think they were referred to as Hall and Nash Um, I think they were still on the fence about like what to call them because at this time, the, the, the WWF was suing WCW for, in what they thought, in their minds, they thought WCW was stealing their characters. So they didn't refer to them as Hall and Nash. They certainly didn't refer to them as Razor and Diesel, but uh, they were just known as the outsiders. These, uh, these two men that were looking to take over WCW. And yeah, that's. Uh, if I remember correctly, I, yeah, I don't think that that's what they were, you know, that they were referred to by their real names at this time. I think it was not long after that, maybe the Nitro the next night or a couple of weeks later. But uh, yeah, they were just, you know, the outsiders. Uh, no, no names, which made for, for me as a fan, I was like, no, that's Razor and Diesel. I couldn't like fathom that like they were going to be called anything else. I even think, if I remember correctly when I used to play with my action figures, I even think that I, uh, when they were announced as Nash and Hall, I, uh, because I knew who they were from their time in WWF, when I would play with the toys and I would say, I would, I would introduce the guys. I would be like, Kevin, the diesel Nash or big daddy, cool Kevin Nash. And then, uh, and he's accompanied by, fellow nwo member scott the razor hall or the razor scott hall like i kind of like i still had a hard time parting with the fact that they were not razor and diesel anymore and they were w they were a part of you know wcw with this nwo faction so that's how far i used to take it when it came with like action figures as you see nash trying to deliver elbow miscommunication uh, with him and savage and uh you know his rib cage kind of is eaten by Randy Savage's forehead. Elbow, typical Nash to the back of the head in the corner to Sting. Um, I was a big Diesel fan when he became a babyface and won the title. I thought he was cool. And he kind of broke the mold for Giants in terms of, you know, big men were always seen as like, super heavyweights or superhuman herculean like and very um not realistic nash to me looked like 
a regular guy that just happened to be tall that could kick your ass. And that was what the appeal was for me, was that, like, he's not some goblin, some ghoul or some monster, you know? He's just a big dude that could beat you up. And I always admired that, that, like, Kevin Nash is, like, if I could... If I could find a good nickname for him, I mean, he's been known as Big Daddy Cool, Big Sexy, but I could, I would say I'd probably call him the Blue Collar Big Man or the Blue Collar Giant because he was just like a regular guy that could beat the shit out of you. And that's what I loved about him so much. And the fact that he was cool. Uh, one of my favorites of all time in my top 10, a guy that uh, people slap, you know, give him shit and give him flack about. Uh, some of the negative things he's contributed to the business, but I'll tell you something right now. With him and Hall and eventually Hogan, this never would have been a big of a deal, as big of a deal as it was if the three of them weren't involved in this. And, you know, Hall and Nash play a pivotal role in getting the ball rolling for this storyline. Um If their if their star if if their star power from WWF um, wasn't so strong, and they tried this, if they didn't, if if Hall and Nash, as Razor and Diesel, didn't achieve or attain the success that they did in WWF before this happened, and they just came in like you know just two regular dudes trying to take over, it wouldn't have. Uh, it wouldn't have worked, in my opinion. It really wouldn't have. But, you know, that's a lot of hindsight being 2020 and a lot of, you know, um, stuff for uh, different random topics and conversations that we can get into in another time. But it worked, obviously, because I'm talking about it right now, 22 years later to the day. Uh, as I'm recording this right now, 22 years later, that, you know, the the greatest heel turn in the history of wrestling took place and I'm only saying that once because it's the truth uh, I told you I didn't like to use the terminology for this podcast but I'm going to use it once and hopefully I won't have to use it again but the greatest good guy became the greatest bad guy on this night as we see Nash sending Sting into the rope Sting drop kicking Nash to the knees putting the big man down Savage and Hall both respectively trying to urge their partners on to make the tag as Hall gets the tag now working on Sting back of the head elbow ooh right hand to the macho man oh yeah uh huh you hit me in my bald spot now I'm gonna have to beat you up dig it uh huh roll up by Sting one kick out and so much took place that changed wrestling after this night uh if you really think about it, I mean, good guys that were normally cheered were ended up getting booed, and bad guys were in, would end up being loved by the audience. You know, these two especially really helped um, bring the the cool bad guy to wrestling that I think still kind of exists today with certain guys. Um, but these two definitely brought that like cool bad guy element uh, to you know the NWO storyline and to WCW storylines in general. 
Um, they were a big influence on uh, names like The Rock and Steve Austin, in my opinion, that people look at as major anti-heroes, and rightfully so. They they did a tremendous job with the anti-hero role, but nothing, uh, none of that would be possible, in my opinion, if it wasn't for these two, Hall and Nash, that really kind of started that. Towards the tail end of their WWF run, and then, of course, as the Outsiders in WCW here, as Nash delivering a devastating abdominal stretch to the Stinger, Macho Man cheering, cheering the Stinger on, trying to get the audience to participate. Textbook right here. Textbook as Nash is uh, clinching the, the the hands of Scott Hall to gain the upper hand in this abdominal stretch. This was what it looked like Conan was trying to accomplish, except he tried to turn that into some sort of weird pinning combination in a, in that match uh, a little while ago with Ric Flair. Here you see Hall getting a tag again, and another elbow to the back of the head of Sting. As the Outsiders take control over Team WCW, Sting and Macho Man Randy Savage clothesline by Hall, kick out at two by Sting. Crowd into it. Randy Savage, of course, making that happen, getting the crowd into it. Scott Hall, another guy that never wore the world championship, never was the world champion. I was always curious as a kid why he never had an opportunity at the WWF championship when he was Razor Ramon. Uh, I always felt like, you know, yeah, he had the Intercontinental belt and it was cool, but... You know, he had been there, done that. He doesn't need to do that anymore. Why isn't he wrestling for the WWF title? And even in WCW, he didn't get many opportunities. I believe he had one title match that I'm aware of against Sting in 98 for the title. And that was only because he won that, like, WCW Battle Bowl, that three-ring battle royal. Uh, but I always felt that Razor Ramon, Scott Hall, very underrated and definitely believable enough to to be the uh, the world champion and have a run with the title right there with Arn Anderson. There's a number of guys, him and Kurt Henning. And I know Rick Rude wore the WCW title, but he never had an opportunity at the WWF title, or at least to be the WWF champion. He wrestled Ultimate Warrior a few times, but uh, a significant run by him. D Ted DiBiase, another name. That's something that we'll probably get into in like, you know, most underrated wrestlers of all time or greatest wrestler to never be the world champion. Well, you know, we, you'll get shows like that on kicking out of too. So I don't want to spoil too much for you, but uh, just thought I'd bring that up. And uh, Sting and Savage and Nash all former world champions in their own right. Sting, an NWA world champion, a TNA world champion, a WCW world heavyweight champion, Nash, WCW world champion, WWF world champion, Savage, wearing both the WWF and WCW world championship at the time, um, respectively. Yeah, so Hall, uh, you know, Odd man out in the uh, the world champion club when it comes to you know this match. As Sting laying in the right hands, 
to the big man. Nash going for another right. Sting ducks rights and lefts by the Stinger. Another right to Scott Hall this time, and a tag to the Macho Man. Uh-huh, oh yeah, thinking, thinking, thinking. I think it's time to be the house of fire, uh-huh. Double X handle the whole bump into Nash, uh-huh. Another, uh, peel to the outside to Scott Hall over the top rope. A few piston-like right hands to Nash, dig it, uh-huh. Double X handle to Scott Hall over the guardrail, uh-huh, back in the ring, yeah. My best Randy Savage. And there we go, right here, Savage cleaning house as Nash, boom. Low blow to the macho man as the referee was distracted by Scott Hall. Crowd gets on their feet in anticipation for this right here. The moment that changed it all for me as a kid, for many people, for the entire wrestling business, this man right here would do something that nobody thought they would see. I certainly didn't. For as long as I was a Hulkamaniac, I never thought in a million years that I would watch Hulk Hogan rear back and deliver this leg drop right here and turn on his brother, Macho Man Randy Savage, and join the Outsiders against WCW, which would eventually become the New World Order. Unbelievable right here. I'll never forget when it was announced that he was the third guy. I didn't find out, obviously, till the next night on Nitro. And they opened the show with... Tony Schiavone and Larry Zbysko at ringside. They were outside the uh, the Disney MGM Studios in, in Orlando, Florida. And Tony Schiavone and Zbysko, had, before they could even finish their sentence, something along the lines of the blackest day in the history of wrestling. And before they could even finish, I just said, Hulk Hogan's the third guy. Not thinking that it would happen, not believing it, but it was just a shot in the dark, like, oh, let me guess, is Hulk Hogan the third guy? And when they said Hulk Hogan was the third man, my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe it. I actually ran into the other room and I said, Dad, Hulk Hogan's a bad guy now. And he was like, no way. I was like, yeah. I was like, he just joined the Outsiders. My father didn't watch much wrestling, but sometimes he'd sit with me and watch and keep track of it. And he was like, no, that's impossible. And I said, no. They're going to show it later. And they showed the still photos to kind of close out that nitro. They kind of built up all throughout the show so that people tuned in so they could see the photos and obviously hype the, uh, the, the replay of that pay-per-view that Tuesday night. But uh, the still photos definitely didn't do it justice. And like I said, like a month or two, it was like a month, yeah, maybe a month or two later, this tape was at the video store. It, I rented it immediately. I watched it, I think, with my brothers. And it was just as shocking watching it on VHS than it was if you were to watch it live. I wish I watched it live. I really do. But uh, it was still a big deal watching it uh, on on tape as a kid. And this here, I think, was, was very vital and important, too. Instead of waiting till the next night on Nitro to, 
to to pop a rating. They uh, we end this pay per view with Hogan's uh, explanations for for joining the Outsiders and for why he turned his back on the people. And uh, as much as I loved Hogan, this was shocking. But I my sophisticated viewing habits and my sophisticated nature in terms of uh, uh, my thoughts on wrestling. I was 50% intrigued that he turned and joined with these guys, but the other 50% of me, I was like, I want the old Hulk Hogan back. I had a hard time grasping and understanding that Hulk Hogan was a bad guy. And I thought that maybe this was going to be his way of turning on WC or, uh, or him and WCW's way of turning on the outsiders and leaving and you know kicking them out so that Razor and Diesel could go back to the WWF I really thought that that was possible because there were a lot of things I was uneasy about I was uneasy about them leaving WWF I was uneasy about Hulk Hogan being a bad guy uh, but little did I know at that time that it would be one of the, the greatest storylines in the history of wrestling, the greatest uh, turn, if you will, from being a good guy to a bad guy. And before this in wrestling, you know, you saw guys do things and the crowd would boo them if, if they were bad guys. Uh, but Hulk Hogan doing this and then you see all this garbage in the ring. You never saw garbage in the ring. Um, you, you just didn't. And that's how much the people, um, I guess you could say, were not pleased that Hogan turned their back on them. But at the same time, they were also the same people that, hindsight being twenty twenty, they were booing him and turning on him when he was being a good guy. So it was almost like, uh, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, so to speak. But uh, this here changed it all on many levels it was a game changer like i said it changed the the from the bad guys being bad guys to being cheered by people and being cool bad guys um it changed the the storytelling went from being wrestling went from being about you know hokey characters to more realistic storytelling and realistic storylines and it pushed the envelope um and made the WWF eventually push the envelope, excuse me, even further than WCW. So this year uh, had a major impact on the business. And to this day, it still does. It still gets talked about uh, in many levels and many circles. And why I wanted to cover it was because of the impact it had on me as a kid and how I felt as a kid. Uh, and how I want you, the listeners, to feel being a part of this Kicking Out at Two podcast is I want you to feel what you felt when you watched these events take place. I don't want you to feel uh, what you felt because you read something on the Internet that a Dave Meltzer told you to read. You know, I, I want you to feel why were you angry that Hulk Hogan turned or why were you angry that the Outsiders invaded WCW? You know, I want those genuine, true feelings and reactions. And that's why I decided to film this pilot today 
on the 22 year anniversary because I was a conflicted young man at 13 years old when Hulk Hogan became a bad guy and when Razor and Diesel went to WCW without me knowing and I felt like there was a lot of unfinished business with them in the WWF um I was just a, I was very conflicted, very confused, and this was a turning point for me as a fan where I was starting to accept more variety and accept different things in wrestling. And uh, this, was, this was a big part of it. Hulk Hogan uh, forming the NWO, joining the Outsiders, and creating one of the most memorable if not the most memorable moment in the history of the wrestling business as we see the trash just littering the ring cops surrounding the ring Hall and Nash, Hogan soaking it all in the beginning stages of what would become the NWO and how it would change the wrestling business forever as we close out the WCW Bash at the Beach 1996, I'll have to say this was a lot of fun doing this. And I uh, appreciate all of you for listening. I appreciate all of you being a part of this. I'm really honored and thrilled and privileged to be looking forward to making more memories like this with all you here for kicking out it too. Uh, for those of you that listen to the Ken Reedy show that are familiar with this voice, like I said at the top of the program, I'm here to venture out and do something different. I'm not leaving the Ken Reedy show anytime soon, okay? I still love doing what I do with Ken, and hopefully Ken and Rocky and the Ken Reedy show can be a part of kicking out or two in some form or fashion down the line once I really start to get my bearings together and really get things going with this podcast. There's so many things I want to do with this show so many avenues I want to take it. I told you some of my ideas about the My Favorite series and the No Filter Theater watch-alongs and the discussion shows that we plan on doing. It's just between my brother and the local independent wrestlers and friends of mine that have watched wrestling, uh, family of mine. This is going to be a lot of fun. It really is, and I really hope that you're all going to be a part of it. I really hope I can bring something different to the podcast world when it comes to pro wrestling because I just feel like every pro wrestling podcast out there all they do is just dissect and complain about the current product uh, and I'll be honest with you we've been guilty of it at the Ken Reedy show where we just fantasy book the whole time and I don't want to do that here I want to do something a little different that's a different world I'll do that over there but I want to do something different here and I want to I want to almost transform into our young adolescent selves as we talk the history of professional wrestling. And on that note, I'm going to leave you all with this. I don't know when, I don't know where, but in the very near future, the premiere episode of Kicking Out at Two will take place. It's July 7th, 2018, currently right now. And uh, I'm thinking within the next month, maybe two, once I get a few more of these practice pilots under my belt that I will uh, eventually premiere. Kicking out a two will be in regular format. 
and uh, I'll get you all the information that you need on social media as to where you can tune in and how you can tune in and listen to this podcast and be a regular follower, a regular listener, a regular liker, like, search, follow me wherever on social media. I'll get you all that information in the very near future on the Ken Reedy Show. And with that being said, thank you all for tuning in tonight. This is awesome. Uh, I know this is a, a long watch along, clocking in almost at three hours, but uh, it's time to wrap things up. And I look forward to many more exciting adventures here at Kicking Out at Two with all of you. I'm Dave Rosenbluth, and until next time, see you later. <laughs>